0: Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippey. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have.
1: What's up? Happy Sunday night, Monday morning. I'm Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Writes podcast. On the other end of the line, as he is every Sunday, former old Miss recruiting specialist, Weldon Rodenberg, we will get into what everyone is talking about these days, and that is ULM beating Liberty as a 32-point underdog outright. Um, Rich Rod versus Hugh Freeze. Uh, that was the matchup we are all waiting for this weekend. Now, we will get into a ton of Ole Miss Tennessee and what was one of the strangest football games I can ever remember, one of the weirder football games I can ever remember, as Weldon and I were discussing before we started recording. He called it one of the dumber games he can remember There's a lot to unpack in a game that lasted four four and a half hours of real time. Uh, And then Ed Orgeron gets fired, uh, which not only is relevant SEC news, but right in your neck of the woods. But before we get to that, one of them, of the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling, handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix, Interval, and Advanced Modeling Mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. Need to check these guys out. Skybox went 3-3 and in the week on the NFL, just kind of riding the wave there. But they're coming off, what, 7 and one in week or seven and0 oh in week one nine and oh week three they are way up on the NFL in the year they had a 11.45 unit week in a NASCAR plus 4.9 units in college football so back to their winning ways in college football you need to check them out if you are into the sports wagering scene, you're going to need some help. You're not going to need to go off your own your own knowledge because you're going to be sitting there on Sunday nights, Monday mornings, already got the scaries, and you don't want the man texting you. You want to be texting the man, asking him where your supplementary income is. Uh, when is that coming? And where is it coming from? You asking him to square up. Skybox is going to help you do that more consistently than anyone in the industry. These guys are awesome. They're going to have a picks package that fits your price range, whether that's month-long, Season long, I'd recommend just going the year long all sports, it's going to pay itself back. And then some you're going to profit money, that's why Skybox is in business, that is what they do. But no matter what your price range may be, check out a daily pass 10 bucks, use a promo code RIPPY 20% off, that becomes eight bucks. Not a math guy, it seems like a pretty solid deal to me. But check them out SkyboxSportsPicks.com, they will help you make money at wagering more consistently than you will on your own. I can promise you that. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Craig. If you're subscribed subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter, that is Rippyrides.substack.com. You get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your football Saturday or Sunday, whatever you prefer. But they've got all kinds of stuff going on there. Lane Train Special, Keith Carter Special. Bacon wrapped fillets, all kinds of delicious sausage, always fresh seafood. It's the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. And you need to go check it out for yourself and find your own favorites. Tell Greg I sent you. um, Tell him you're a subscriber to the Rippy Writes newsletter, and you'll get that Prime Strip special. And uh, Greg's just a great guy. You need to go check him out. He is the best place in Mississippi to get meat, and he wants to make your grilling experience great. I promise you that. Check him out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. What's up, man?
0: Not too much. Yeah. Uh, yesterday was a long day, and looks like today is going to be just as long just from a sports standpoint. I mean, that game was, like you mentioned, I said it earlier, one of the dumbest football games I've ever watched in my life. And I, I truly mean that. I've watched a lot of football. Um, I mean, we'll get into all of the everything that happened football-wise and not football-wise, because I think both those conversations are honestly just as interesting so we'll wherever we're headed we'll get there but a lot happened
1: (laughs) i know you're chomping at the bit so let's we'll go over some initial thoughts on just the reaction to the because as we record this this only broke what a couple hours ago my buddy brody miller wrote a pretty well reported not pretty well very well reported story in the athletic today about you know the firing of ed orgeron um it really kind of to me and i'll get your thoughts on it too it really kind of confirmed everything you had heard. And I thought Brody articulated it well of like, it was the perfect storm, right? It wasn't any one thing, right? Like on right. An, in a vacuum, him having two crappy seasons after putting together one of the greatest runs in a single season in college football history would seem insane, but it's not because it wasn't just on field stuff. And then, you know, he finally kind of gets it in that, you know, we I did a solo open on Wednesday after everything that happened last week in the really just not only Ole Miss media landscape, but media in general about like, Real journalism and how that's rare anymore. That was kind of the big J stamp. Like, this is real. Like you kind of it was confirmed in writing. And that was my thoughts on the matter. Like it just confirmed, what I think we already knew.
0: Yes, I mean that's exactly correct. I think there was a lot of going on, a lot going on behind the scenes that Brody wrote about. I read that article earlier that basically everyone knew what was going on, including those in Baton Rouge, and then no one really said anything about it. Um, and I think it kind of stems from. Unfortunately, I think it was, what, 30 days after the national championship game, he has to uh, file for divorce with with his wife, which, if people know the story about that, was actually not an Ogeron fault. Um, you know, a lot of things happen in marriages, and we shouldn't poke into his personal relationships, but things really began to spiral off the field with him from stemming from that, and it's, it's kind of sad, honestly. You know, I think he really was – building something at LSU and building something in himself that was really growing as a person and a coach. And then once adversity kind of started to hit, he started to revert back to his ways. And I don't know a whole lot about his tenure at Ole Miss. I was not an Ole Miss fan or knew much about it. I know there was a lot that happened throughout that entire thing. But at LSU, he really – and truly was a different person for his first years there. I mean, before that, the 2019 season and 18, they they went 10 and two and won the fiesta ball. Like things were picking up and building and, you know, he was pushing all the right buttons, but that was only lasted for so long. And I think that is an indictment on just what he is as a, pro, as a program builder is that it was kind of fool's gold. In the end, he couldn't, make the hires he couldn't do the things you need to do to sustain a program and it's not easy only Nick Saban's really been able to do it I mean Dabo and Clemson they've had the damn same damn defensive and offensive coordinators for the entire tenure there he hasn't had to change shit uh, Ogeron had to change a lot and he just was not able to do it all field killed him horrible evaluations recruiting has hurt him and here we are now and it's not overly surprising but it's a little sad I guess when it actually happens you're like damn you know
1: but I think that's incredibly well put about it being sad and the guy kind of like losing you know he kind of got it back on the rails and then kind of became like you mentioned a new person and then it really went off the rails I want to I know people want to get to the old Miss game so we'll get to that first and yeah. the, but I want to get back to that because like speaking of a lot going on, you hit on a couple of different things that I wanted to get to with the Ogeron thing there. And I, I agree. I mean, that's when I read for reading the article, I was like, this is, you know, if you can envy a guy that's a, you know, got a nine figure bank account, it, it is kind of sad. Like, he I mean, at the end of the day, he's going to lo- end up with a ton of money and really nothing else. Right. I mean, like in terms of personal life and the job that he had and coveted, uh, and that's taken away from him. But anyway, we'll get into that in a little bit. That'll probably dominate most of our, uh, outside the SEC talk. But like I said, speaking of a lot going on, holy hell, what a game last night between Ole Miss and Tennessee. If I were still working for a newspaper, um, I was never responsible for the headlines. I would actually contend I was a terrible headline writer. I just didn't understand the art of it, I would say. But uh, if the word survival was not in there, I think they missed the mark because that's exactly what Ole Miss did going into Knoxville last night. And we can take it a number of different directions. There's really probably not a better place to start than Matt Corral because I was watching the game again today, and I actually kind of still have it up, parts of this third, fourth quarter, playing on the other screen while we're recording this. But to me, watching that game, even in live action, it was abundantly clear that that was one dude just absolutely willing, a very injured, shorthanded, and inexperienced offense to, to a win. I mean, every time they moved the ball down the field, it felt like he was lugging weight behind him. It felt like a horse that was carrying a very, very heavy carriage load, whatever the phrase may be behind him. I mean, how the man ends up with 30 carries. He had 200 yards. I think he lost five on the last drive between like them sliding and all that crap, but he 30 carries to 200 yards. I I don't even really know how to put it into words, but you know, if Ole Miss has any, uh, any other quarterback, I'll say it like this: If Ole Miss has any other quarterback in the country playing quarterback for them last night, they don't win the game. The only one who could have done that, to me, in my opinion, based on what I've seen in college football this year, is Matt Corral. If not, they yeah, lose.
0: I don't disagree. Uh, I mean, Caleb Williams looks pretty damn electric. Okay,
1: that kid, that may be. <laughs> I'd like to see a little more. Can I get a? Yeah,
0: like to see a little bit more of a. But yeah, that that kid seems like a stud. But no, I kind of looking back at it. I've watched. I cannot really remember a game that I've watched that a player just single-handedly on the road put a team on his back and just like this this game is going to come down to me. I can't remember one that I've watched, you know, four quarters of or been at where a game has been like that. It was a hell of a performance. It re- I mean, And it was a hell of a play call – I mean, not play call, a game plan by Levy and Kiffin to c- kind of realize what they were doing o- on defense and every time – The quarterback draw was there every time they drew it up, except for maybe one time it was there. And Kevin said after the game, they realized they were going to have to run him. It just was going to have to be a part of this game plan, missing Chase Rogers, Mingo, I didn't even realize Sanders was out of the game until they. I went home. I was at I a bar. In find the, it the
1: second time. I don't know when he went out. I I, I couldn't. Yeah, find I don't it. even
0: remember. Um, and I was just watching the in the second half, and he just wasn't out there. So he was missing everybody. Um, we'll get to Jacore Pearson's game, I'm sure, but it just he had to do it all himself. The running game wasn't great, um, except for him. I mean, it was really really impressive. He still isn't getting the love you would expect a guy like that to get. Maybe it's because it was on SEC Network. You just haven't seen a whole lot of people just saying how amazing he was. Everyone's kind of talking about the shit that happened after the game or during the end of which the game. Which is a shame. Which is a joke, and like we'll also get to that, I'm sure. But he was amazing, and it was awesome to watch. And uh, he's going to carry this team as far as they can go, but
1: they got a lot of things they need to fix. You beat. I know you're getting good at this because you beat me to my question before I asked it. Where you said it was a good game plan by Kiffin and Lebby about you know figuring out pretty early that they knew they were going to have to run with all the injuries there. And you mentioned the quarterback draw being there every time. Again, I'm not going to like paint you into a corner and say break down for me why the middle of the field was open that often. But that clearly was even. I guess what I, the way best way to ask it is this: even if they had not been so injured that would have been a heavy part of what they'd done, right? Like that was a very pre-game game planning week up effort for however Tennessee was playing with the whole four-two-five thing, and That kind of made sense to me, even as kind of a football novice, where they're kind of spreading them out when you only have two linebackers and four down linemen. Seems obvious the middle of the field would be a little softer at times, a little more susceptible yeah. to the run. But when you were watching that game last night, did that seem very apparent to you early on? They're going to be doing this all night it got kind of injected with steroids given everyone and everything they were missing, but fully healthy. That's still a massive part of what they're doing. Right.
0: Right. I mean, that's definitely what they're doing. They're trying to look at the numbers and saying, you know, if you have this in the box, we're going to run the ball. Um, But they were playing a lot of four down kind of throughout the game and the offensive line. I really do think it's a product of just the communication on the road has not been good with this team. Alabama now we've seen against Tennessee like they just were not getting hats on hats uh so in order to kind of alleviate that you use the quarterback as a runner and have the running back as an extra blocker and you've got the numbers even more in your favor than you would beforehand and at some point they Tennessee really didn't adjust they tried to spy but they are really low at linebacker and after running 90 plays you know throughout the game, it's going to be exhausting to keep trying to spy Corral for those linebackers. I think they only played two or three the entire game, uh, and they just couldn't stop them. The offensive line was doing a awesome job blocking downfield, despite not being able to block on a lot of just the, the simple run plays. Um, and it just kept them in rhythm the entire time. It was perfectly executed almost every single time they did it. And – it was just perfect. They they knew exactly what they needed to do when it came to that, and they kept running it. They didn't adjust. And that's kind of something coaches don't love to do is just keep running the same play over and over again. If you can't stop it, don't – you know, if it's not
1: broke, don't fix it. But they did it. They were like, screw it. We're just going to keep doing it if they're not going to adjust. You mentioned the offensive line part of that. I think that's interesting where you said part of it's a communication issue. And I had Sean Rawlings on the podcast before the Alabama game because – as I've outlined a couple of times, I'm sure I've talked to you about this too, but I just thought he was an interesting person to talk to because he was the benefactor of kind of the crappy Tunsil situation where he's having to play as a red shirt freshman before he's really ready. But one of the things he was talked about was, uh, you know, I was just asking him, how loud does it actually get on the road? And he was like, dude, we went silent count everywhere, but sometimes it's so bad, like noise wise he was saying one of the indications of it being kind of next level noise is when you bring in the play call to where the offensive line has to go one by one by one and like tell it to each other, like the quarterback can't even reach the entire huddle. And I was sitting there thinking, I was like, damn, these dudes are standing right next to each other and you can't hear Chad Kelly, you know, yelling at them. And I know that's always a factor, but I think it's often, I think it's often kind of overlooked. as just part of it. But if you can't hear the play call, that's very hard. And you mentioned a lack of communication. What Rawlings had the benefit of was veterans. It was Jordan Bell. It was – or Justin Bell. Sorry, I messed that up. Justin Bell, Robert Conyers, guys that had been through some wars. And Ole Miss has a little bit of that up front. Orlando Uman is a transfer. It seemed like a lot more Cedric Melton than Jordan Rhodes last night. You know, the tackles are old-ish, but I wouldn't say they kind of had the seasoning that that group did. I I just think, like, having an offensive line that's kind of been through that – a lot of times probably helps in some of those situations to where Ole Miss, it's still a relatively new group. They haven't played a ton of football together as a unit, whether that's four of them playing together or five, it's really only two and a half.
0: Yeah. Something like that. I mean, before this game, to be honest, I, I would have picked Tennessee to win this game if we had done a pod. Yeah, I really would have. I mean, they were on fire. I didn't know what this defense was going to look like. Um, and I thought that they have not really played very well on the road, even last year and into this year. Uh, I just wasn't that confident, to be totally honest. Um, and I think a lot of my thoughts were at least kind of correct, because a lot of things could have gone different ways, and Ole Miss could have definitely lost this football game. But Corral, as we mentioned, kind of saved them. And when it comes to the offensive line, that was my biggest concern, I thought they played really well last week, but that's at home at 11 a.m. when the advantage is on your side. Now they're having to go to maybe the craziest atmosphere they'll see this year, uh, 102,000, biggest game in Tennessee in four or five years at least, uh, and have to handle it. And they didn't handle it well at Alabama. I didn't think they were going to handle it particularly well uh, at Tennessee. And and early in that game, they really didn't. But they did begin to kind of settle in realized that, hey, we can we can do this. Got to just communicate a little bit. Got to trust the quarterback. And the quarterback had to trust the offensive line because early in that game, Matt was kind of erratic. You know, he was getting the ball out of his hands quicker than even he thought he had to. Uh, but as the game went on, as Ole Miss kind of started to establish some things, including the quarterback draw, I thought the O-line played much, much better and got much more comfortable with the play calls and what they needed to do.
1: This is, might be a bad question, but is it easier to block for a draw like that where you're kind of like – it seems simpler than maybe like pulling or – is it less complicated, I guess? Is there I anything to that?
0: Kind of. I think it's because it's kind of the, the uh, element of surprise, whereas if you're, you're – these defensive linemen are uh, rushing upfield trying to get to the quarterback, the offensive line, you kind of just shade your defensive lineman there and kind of push him outwards instead of having to push him to keep him in front of you. okay. And then you kind of just let him go. Matt comes up behind you, and then you have to look for a body in front of you. And that's obviously incredibly difficult to find a linebacker and get a hand on him. I mean, we saw Corral have to push Broker out of the way uh, on one of those runs <laughs> where we were trying to find a safety. Uh, so, obviously, that, that part of it is very difficult. But, no, but when you're your initial block where you're just kind of shading to the guy, trying to get him to rush outside so that natural hole will fill in the middle – It's a little bit easier, a little bit less stressful, I guess, on the offensive linemen. Um, But it obviously doesn't work every single time because sometimes they'll they'll, uh, slant or something that kind of ruins the play, which happened once or twice, but it's definitely easier.
1: Maybe it's out there, and I haven't seen this yet, but um, I was surprised we didn't get, like, the ESPN Stats and Info the last time a quarterback had 30 carries and 200 yards in a game or something, or like a 200, 200 type, I guess he wasn't technically at 200. So it's a little bit different, but I, I, I can't remember the last time a quarterback carried it 30 times in a game. I mean.
0: Yeah. With the exception of like the, you know, the academies. Yes. The, yeah. That would be
1: obviously an exception, like an SEC team. I, that's probably a good way to frame it. I'm surprised we didn't get like, he's the first SEC quarterback to carry 30 times since X it's just, it really was remarkable. And you talk about fatigue. It's a good point. Tennessee didn't have much depth defensively Ole Miss and and Tennessee were really two sides of the same coin in that sense or I guess that's not necessarily the right phrase they were kind of mirror images of other defensively they like Tennessee had probably played a little better like Tennessee had played above expectations for most of the year but they didn't have depth either and one of the things on the post game show last night that really kind of like stopped me in my tracks and had to stop for a second was like whoa Neil dropped it on me that Ole Miss ran 101 plays on offense. I was like, whoa. Like, holy cow, that's that's a lot, <laughs> and it really wore on them. And I think you're kind of dead on to where it's like, yeah, you could try the QB spy, but that requires a lot of energy, a lot of effort. And, you know, doing that late in the fourth quarter or late in the third quarter when you're, you know, down or you're 90 plays into a game, it's really difficult to do. And I thought that was really effective for Ole Miss. And a part of that, obviously, like the, the part that, it, like, when I mentioned it getting injected on steroids and them doing that over and over again, some of them clearly weren't designed. A lot of them were, but do you think they went to that more given the fact that Sanders went out of the game? Because all of a sudden you're looking up and you're like, it's Drummond, Pearson, and Dennis, and then right. like they even tried like a deep ball to Ely. Out of they were trying different things to kind of like supplement the passing game. The the Braylon going down when you're already down Mingo. Would that have do you in your opinion, do you think that kind of heavily factored into their decision to continue to try the quarterback thing? Because it didn't seem like they trust the receivers. And, you know, in Pearson's case, with good reason sometimes.
0: Right. Um, I think it definitely factored into it. I mean, Levy knows it, Kiffin knows it. It's a it's a players, not plays offense. And once you're losing all of these receivers, tight ends, running backs aren't getting anything going, you just have to put the ball in your best players' hands. And they were just willing to do it for the entire game, pretty much. Uh injury just who who cares? You know, he's we got we have to win this football game. Um, I I still hate that they have to run him so much to be successful, but you have to I bet they do a little too. No, they definitely do. They definitely, definitely do. They they don't want to do it, but with what Kiffin said after the game, they knew they had to do it in this game, just the way things were going to make it happen.
1: I didn't watch this myself, so hand up, but I'm going to go off of a Rebel Grove poster, starting a thread about this, and I don't usually like to do this without actually kind of confirming it myself, but this is not some sort of like hot take message board rumor. He's, there was a thread on the board that said they watched Heupel's post game presser and said that Heupel was very surprised that Matt Corral was that physical runner and ran that frequently. And I was like, have like, what tape did you watch? I mean, obviously, I mean, maybe it was some like last year, but this is kind of what he's been all year, even in the Louisville game. Like the Louisville, we talked about it after the opener, like, wow, like corral's kind of like the early season, Sam Darnold kind of red zone threat type of thing. Right. Like we were kind of interested in him running in the red zone that really expanded. I was just, Maybe, you know, there those guys have come off such emotional losses. Sometimes they are not necessarily thinking clearly and say all things right. they don't necessarily mean per se. But that was shocking to me. Like, I, I you may not have seen that. I doubt it because no one really watched the Tennessee postgame presser. But like, what do you make of that? Do you think it was just an offhanded comment? Because that to me, if you watched any sort of film on Corral at all from this year, that would definitely be part of it.
0: Yeah, I think, there, I think he's right on one thing and wrong on the other. I think he's definitely wrong on, like, his physicality as a runner and his ability as a runner because that's been pretty clear this year and even a little bit last year that the kid's a pretty dynamic athlete. And I've always really said that he's does not get the credit he deserves as a runner. I think he's even more effective at it than Plumlee was um, just from an overall standpoint. But, I mean, he, he is kind of right. Like, they don't run them 30 times a game. That is true. So, there, he probably is like, yeah, I don't think I was expecting that, which is definitely fair in, with the way that uh, Ole Miss has played this year. So, he's right on one, right on one wrong on the other. And, uh, I mean, he made some other comments. I actually did see that video because I guess it was on Twitter because people were wanting to see what he had to say about the fans and everything. And I thought he probably answered that about his – that's as he good really i mean what do you do you throw your entire fan base under the
1: bus yeah those people uh, suck all one hundred two thousand of them but thanks yeah, for coming like yeah, yeah. i mean that's an impossible situation for him to answer because like you know of course he's saying it i guess what is it i'm guessing it was the i appreciate our fans passion but there's no place for that type of thing like i mean the, kind but, of yeah, yeah. what, what, what else like do you that. say like it is what it is but man what a performance by corral and you know this is a small thing and it's not something that he's thinking about in a game, but when, they, when Sanders went down and they're having to play Dennis on the outside, he was so, I'm trying to think of the best way to articulate this. He was so locked in and seemed to make things easier for some of the guys that had not really been in that spot before. The touchdown to Dennis down the far sideline was a perfectly thrown football. There was a third and seven early in the second half that Ole Miss really needed to convert. I think it was after, right after – it was on the their own side of the field. It was right after Tennessee had scored to where if Ole Miss goes three and out. You're thinking, oh, hell, like this is about to get weird. Yeah. And there wasn't a ton of separation. Dennis is going across the field from the right side to the left, and there wasn't a ton of separation between Dennis and whoever was chasing him. I can't remember if it was a linebacker or was a corner. And Corral puts it, like, right in the bread basket. Like, i, I do not even sure – it would have been harder for Dennis to drop it with the way he placed that ball and right in stride and he gets the first down marker and they convert a huge third and seven. And I know he's not dropping back and thinking in the moment, Oh, Dennis hasn't really done this before. I have to really put this in the right spot. But to me, that's just the benefit of having an elite level quarterback to where he can you know, elevate guys around him. Like when people use that cliche, to me, that's part of it. Like he made things on Dennis Jackson as easy as they could possibly be. And I don't think you get that from everyone. I don't know if you noticed some of that at all.
0: It's just quarterbacks elevate everyone around them. And uh, that definitely happened last night. Dennis played very well. And he needs to step up, especially with the clear injuries they have at receiver. Um, And Pearson did not play well. But that's just kind of a product of where we're at. Corral has to be able to trust the guys around him. Because if he doesn't trust them, it will not work. And he kept going back to Pearson. He didn't care who was out there. Right. I'm making the reads. I'm playing the game the way we're supposed to and the offense we're supposed to. If the coaches trust this guy to be out here, I have to trust him. And Pearson, I, I will really give Lane credit because when he dropped that, that ball right in, in front of Lane, Lane goes straight up to him pats him on the back and say, hey, like, get over it. Go get back in the game. And there's not a lot of coaches that might do that, uh, at least not publicly. So
1: That's him about, having a good feel yeah. for the game, right? He exactly. knows that's his only option.
0: And it, it, we'll kind of discuss that. I guess we can talk about it right now. But sure. it's incredibly clear that the reason Zero is playing so much is because they don't have a guy behind him that they trust to be put in the game and know what's going on,
1: which He's is an exciting
0: which is concerning and an indictment on the players behind them. Not necessarily their – it's not like a D-Nicks thing. It's, it's – you D-Nicks, you can, you know, lead the cattle to water, but you can't make them drink kind of deal. Yep. It, it, these guys have to figure it out on their own. This is not – this is not an NFL offense. And if they don't want to figure it out and you you have – you can't force feed them. You can't do what they did with Dante Moncrief and put him on the sideline next to Freeze and just yell the play at him before the play starts. <laughs> You can't do that with this. It just won't be successful, especially on the road. Um, so there's definitely a depth issue there. They're going to have to find some guys that can make some plays. I think you're going to start seeing a lot more Plumlee um, in the There's slot. a little
1: bit of that last night, too. You're right.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, I think the only reason Plumley is not playing that much is because he just naturally isn't a great route runner, and you can still see it if you watch him closely – Just the hips wise, he's really not making guys miss or anything like that. He is uh, just a very straight lined, tight hip player that is it it makes it difficult. And Pearson, for for all the issues he had catching the ball, is a very good route runner, very quick and gets by people all the time. And we saw it last night. He just got to make the plays Um, and they're going to find somebody to step up, whether it's a tight end, whether it's a running back, but. What you're not going to see them do is move Drummond to the outside and switch people around and then have to reteach all of the offense to all these different guys. It's just going to have to be the guys in those positions making plays because Drummond's now your best receiver. You have to keep him in the slot where he's been and where he's been most effective because moving him outside, it's a different position. I don't think people totally understand that. We've had the conversation about Ely moving around Ely's not going to be a slot receiver next week because he's got to learn the slot receiver position. And they've installed so much in this offense over two years. That doesn't take one week. So there's going to be half a lot that's going to have to happen and kids are going to have to step up.
1: Yeah, you're dead on with that. And what was interesting to me when you talk about it kind of being an indictment in the whole you can lead them to water, but you can't make them drink or whatever the whole the old saying goes, yeah,
0: I think it's close to that. I don't remember.
1: I mix phrases up every single time I do a podcast on here. So it's really just kind of part of the show. Uh, we're staying on brand there. I'm pretty sure that's the right analogy there. But it, it was interesting. Zach Berry reported on Friday on the board. I should say reported what put it on the board that he was hearing that Braylon Sanders, or excuse me, Braylon Brown was healthy and ready to kind of ready to give it a full go. I haven't seen the snap count. Um, from the game I think that'll come out tomorrow but I don't think he played I'm actually fairly confident he didn't play because I would have noticed it given who the hell they had out there and that's not I don't mean to say like well look what Zach said and it didn't happen that's not what I'm getting at at all but that's just kind of another thing if Braylon Brown is healthy like the way they talked about him in camp I would have thought he was ready to play and then I guess what I was had written down to ask you is like Who is it in your mind? I mean, you were around this team long enough. you still, I mean, you know the personnel as bad as well as anyone because you recruited most of the roster. You mentioned you're going to see a lot more Plumlee, but just for the sake of the argument, let's take him out of the equation for a second. Like, in a perfect world where the cattle are drinking, who would the next one be? Is it Jaden? I'm having trouble even thinking of guys.
0: Yeah. um, I mean, I personally don't really know Zach but I do not doubt that his reporting was correct that Braylon was healthy and ready to go, but he's also a true freshman. They're about to go play their biggest game of the season on the road. Like that's not exactly the best environment to uh, get his uh, first few snaps of real football. So that's probably what happened there. If I had to guess Jaden Jackson's always been as talented as anybody at the receiver position. Uh, He clearly just doesn't want it. That that's the only reason he's either not figuring it out or he just doesn't want it. And, Take from that what you will. That, that's just the way I see it.
1: That's somewhat uh, common with guys, right? That's kind of how this game works, right? All just, the time, You get them to yeah. that point and they either want it and they're able to kind of turn into a good player or don't, right? That's kind of – y'all's job is to get them there and then you just kind of sit back and watch to see if they get there, right? This really kind of hits yeah. in your sweet spot.
0: Absolutely. And that's not like an old Miss-centric problem. No, it's everywhere. None of these things are just an old Miss-centric, like this is the only football team dealing with stuff like this. That's not the case at all. Uh, but they're definitely going to have to re examine this wide receiver room after this season and even during the season and see what's going to happen. Um, D- Jaden would be one that I would think, but it's clear that's not going to happen. Uh, Buck, uh, Buck Halter, haven't seen a whole lot from him. He's a true freshman. You, it's just, I know you see it around the country, but not every kid as a true freshman is ready to compete um, and start for an SEC football team. It's not that common. It's not that normal. It happens very f- ill frequently. Uh, J.J. Henry is another true freshman. Maybe he makes some plays in the slot.
1: I wouldn't be I surprised. i about him.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a little bit more of him. He is uh, he is very small, but he is also very dynamic. Played in Texas high school football with real coaching. Plus, he's a great kid. I would not be surprised to see him maybe try to push some slots Quay Davis, haven't seen anything from him. I
1: was about to ask you about him, yeah.
0: yeah. And that's someone I thought that was going to be a guy who could contribute. He clearly is below the ranks. He's a Juco guy. You'd expect him to come in and, and play a little bit. So, I don't know. I really don't. You're not moving Miles Battle back to receiver. That will not happen. So, you can cross that off the list and take that out. Um, you just have to patchwork it. You just have to figure something out. Maybe you play some more tight ends. And, you know, some two wide receiver sets, two tight end sets, some two running back sets kind of change up your, your personnel to deal with the situation, but it's definitely an issue looking forward that you have to deal with.
1: As far as Plumlee goes, cause I thought you made an interesting point where it's like, yeah, it's clear he's not a very good route runner and that's to be expected, right? Like the kid spent two years at quarterback and, you know, And there is a reason why like these guys are good at what they do and they're recruited as receivers. There's a baseline ability level and that's part of it. And you can learn some of it and he hasn't had a ton of time to do that. And part of that was him being away at baseball. And that's not really a knock or an indictment on the kid, but the the way I would ask this is like, there's ways to overcome that with the guy with his speed. Right. And he has decent enough hands. I know he kind of catches it with the body sometimes, but like, to me, as like a football novice. That's, Getting him out on a quick screen, kind of like they did a little bit last night. They did one on a third down where Corral just got absolutely blown up. They kind of leaked. I can't remember if it was in motion out of the backfield. And it looked like it was kind of there. And then Kiff, to Kiff, what Kiffin said after the game was on the, on the fumble return for a touchdown that never was. He mentioned I thought that was kind of a fourteen point play because we had Plumley wide the hell open. I don't know what Plumley was doing on that play. But gone. there's stuff to overcome that, right? Like the. To me, it's the classic kind of you saw with Evan Ingram sometimes, but Ole Miss has done it with the slot where you stick it in the running back stomach. If the linebacker sucks in, it's just them kind of running straight down the field a little bit and turning and looking for the ball. Like there's stuff to get around him not being a great route runner, right. To contribute and kind of just make do.
0: Yeah. You can do different things with them. He doesn't have to just be sitting out there in the slot, trying to be the guys, be guys one-on-one. And I think he's improved throughout the season. Um, I was not at practice. So you know, you see a lot more about what guys can do in practice. But in the games, I think he's been in the game plan more these past few games. I think you're going to see a lot more of it, whether it's on jet sweeps. Maybe he's going to be in the backfield. That's something we, you know, kind of messed with last year a little bit. I haven't seen it this year. Um, or, you know, you just bubble screens, make them go deep, try to outrun people. Yeah, they'll, they'll figure something out. This is – fortunately, this is a coaching staff that knows – who they have and what they need to do. They're not going to just look at the situation and be like, all right, well, we can keep on moving forward. They're going to adjust, and they're going to need to do it pretty quickly.
1: Absolutely. And that was another part of last night that I wrote down, and it was a little more evident watching the game today, was like part of that has got to be a little bit of a Kiff- credit to Kiffin and Levy, and I know we kind of gave them their props and already kind of went over the whole this was part of the game plan thing. But it really is kind of amazing to watch where Ole Miss was outmanned on the line of scrimmage at times you mentioned the offensive line not handling well and that's happened a couple times this year it was at Alabama and Alabama is not a good example to prove the point I'm about to make but Ole Miss was very injured and they were very shorthanded and you never once thought man they can't do anything you know sometimes you watch incompetent offenses whether it's college in the NFL and they can't block and their weapons aren't doing anything and it's like holy hell, like this team might not cross the 50. Like there was never a point last night where it felt like Ole Miss could not move the football. And part of that has to be some schematic credit because, I mean, they were working with very kind of shorthanded guys. And I just kind of find that find that to be fascinating where there's never been a game. The there, there closest to it was Ole Miss against Alabama, but even then they were moving the ball fine at t- most of the time in between the 20s. I just find it amazing there hasn't been a game with the offensive line issues they've had where it's like, okay, they can't do anything, and they're going to be punt, 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 punt. That's just never happened. It's kind of crazy to me.
0: It is. And it's just, I mean, we can give as much credit to them as we want. They're obviously incredibly good at their jobs, (laughs) and that's part of it. But it's really just the diversity of what they do week to week. I mean, it's like the Patriots with Brady, and that's obviously incredibly hyperbolic. But if you watch the Patriots just throughout their reign with Brady, they were a completely different team every single week. It was either they saw a team where they're going to have to run the ball 45 times or they play a team that have to throw the ball 45 times. With Kiffin and Levy, it's ne- not necessarily that drastic. It is, though. Like, it right? is, though, in some ways. You're right. I mean,
1: last – Last week they were day, different.
0: Yeah. They were like, okay, against Arkansas, yeah. we're just going to run the ball in the numbers, right, or throw the ball. And Matt only threw it, what, 22 times against Arkansas? Yeah, 14 to it. 21. Fourteen twenty-one, 21 yeah. And then last night, they're like, okay, we see what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to run Matt 20 times, and that's what we're going to have to do to win the game. So they just adjust to what the defense says, and they adjust what the personnel they have on the team is doing. And it's just not something you see from a whole lot of coaches uh, in college football. It's, it's very, very rare that teams will, week to week, completely differentiate their game plan uh, to fit what their team has and does well.
1: One of the last things I want to get to before we go to defense, because I think when we talk about the defense, it'll little it'll fall in line with a not play by play, but a little more linear version of how the game played out when we talk about the defense. But the last thing I wanted to hit at you, because we talked about this a little bit last week, I'm sure you noticed it too. When they started the game, it was Parrish in the slot and Snoop at running back. And I haven't seen the snap counts yet, but it was a lot of Snoop and a lot of Parrish and a little bit of Ely mixed in. And I just got to wonder if that's here to stay after last week, we talked about it against Alabama. Some, I mean, even before the Alabama game, it was a little bit more of where is Snoop. And I think you're starting to see it kind of manifest itself. And I don't know what that means for Ely. I I just, I guess the best way to what's your take on it? Like, I I thought that was fascinating. I think it's clearly the right thing to do, but Mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't a ton of Ely last night. I was trying to pull up the carries, but my my computer's freezing up on me. I just it, it seems like they're kind of going with Snoop and Paris and mixing in Ely when they can, because it's not like Ely's injured. If you're cleared for concussion, you can play. Right. It's not like he has a hamstring at 80 percent or something right. like that. Like it's this seems to be what they want to do now. Did you notice that last night?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think Parrish was probably in the slot. The scripts, to begin games, you're always meddling with different kinds of formations, so it's kind of an anomaly. Oh, yeah, a, for sure. So to, to see, you know, Ely or Snoop or Parrish in the slot, that's a, a, a beginning of the half script. Because they ran
1: of- the first play to him, but I guess my point was just kind of like you saw a lot more right. Ely and, uh, excuse me, a lot more Parrish and Connor. I think the ter- – so I finally put up the carriage dis- dispersal. It was – 10, 15, so 10 for pairs, 15 for Snoop, and seven for Elite.
0: Yeah, and I feel like that's seven more. I feel like he only did not even have that many. Uh, I, I, think, I think maybe he was not fully back from the concussion or didn't get to practice a lot, and that's why that's that was the case. But my head tells me that it's probably because they're way more confident in the production they've gotten out of the other two. And in my opinion, I think that's probably the right way to see it. Uh, the other guys have been playing very, very well. Neither of them had fantastic games yesterday. Uh, I, I still think Parrish play, always just plays well with what's, what he can do. He makes the most out of it. Whereas Snoop needs a little bit more help from the offensive line to really gash some holes. But they, I think they're kind of separating themselves as the top two backs, the guys you are going to see in the game, much more than Ely. And I think it's very fair. I don't think that's anything Ely has done. I think it's really a lot more of what the other two have
1: done better. So as a recruiting guy, Ely, five-star kid, right? Right. What do you, is there, I'm trying to think, is there a better way to use him or does this just happen sometimes? Because when you think five stars is kind of your average person following college football that probably has a, you know, loose handle on how recruiting goes every year. When you think five stars, you think, can't miss. And I don't mean like Ely's a bust, but it just is, seems wild to think about that Parrish and Connor have turned into better is a weird word, more useful college running backs for what Ole Miss is trying to do than Jerry on Ely. I'm just curious if you were in charge of calling plays and kind of running this offense is, would you use Ely in different ways? Or is this just kind of is what it is. And you're going to ride with the guys that are performing better. I'm just curious what kind of goes into this because it doesn't seem like Ely's necessarily done anything. The guys have just kind of risen above him. If that makes any sense at all, what would you do to use him?
0: Yeah, I would get him out in space more. Cause that's clearly his most effective uh, form of running um, when it comes to five-star stuff. Yeah, when you're recruiting kids, that is, I guess, a factor, and yeah, that's part of it. But once they get to campus, no one gives a shit, and that's, right. including, that's including the coaches. I don't give a shit what you were ranked. The guys that are the best players are going to play. And there's plays last night where you know Snoop and Parrish are taking these uh, these kind of bubble screens and uh, these flat routes, and they're running through Tennessee defenders on the way to getting the first down by a yard. And this year so far, Ely, though he is – Electric with speed. And if he's in the open field, he hasn't shown the ability to make people miss or run through, you know, tacklers. He just hasn't been able to do that. And some of these plays, you have to be able to kind of make that one guy miss or run through that one guy to get the first down. There's just not a lot of room for error in some of the things that you do. It's such an inch game of inches, and Ely hasn't been getting those inches, which is, you know, a term and then also a reality as we saw against Alabama. Parish and Snoop have. So I'm going to give a shit if he's a five-star. He's been a very good player for Ole Miss. But just in the current scenario, what's going on, Parish and Snoop have been better. It's not necessarily, in my opinion, an elite issue. It's more of a Parish and Snoop rising kind of
1: deal. For – a two-sport kid, Do you, I know they can't factor this in on a week-by-week week basis, but to me, a kid that does play two sports and a kid that admitted out of high school that baseball still – I think he said something along the lines of, had my heart or baseball still my first love, something like that. I don't want to misquote the kid, but the kid that still very clearly like, kind of wants to be a baseball player and he's in a weird spot because he missed a season, do you – you see this in the NBA a lot more. Do you do anything to try to keep him involved more than seven carries a night to make sure he's a part of your future? Because they could get one more year out of him.
0: Um, sorry, I see Ross Dellinger just tweeted something.
1: Okay. <laughs> we got a lot. We've got a lot to get to. No worries. We gotta. Yeah. I mean, know news might break by the time we finish this podcast or something. No, I,
0: I thought. I thought he it broke that they just let him go right now. That's not. That's not what he said. Sorry, but um, back to Ely. Uh, he. I, you can't you can't cater to kids <laughs> you just cannot do it And he is incredibly talented I think there might be something more they can get out of him doing a few different things but you're not going to you know develop your game plan about like well we need Ely to be a little bit more happy so let's uh, throw him a few more passes maybe you do it earlier in the game to get him going and then if you see that he's kind of rounding into form like you know he can, then you kind of keep feeding him here or there. But I don't see them, Levy and Kiffin, going into a game and being like, this is going to be the Ely game. I just, you can't do that with the way the other two guys are playing, including the quarterback, by the way, who we haven't really mentioned in the running deal. It's just, it just kind of is what it is at this point. He's got to step up in practice or in games, or he's going to keep falling down that carry short.
1: Absolutely. And, yeah, that, but that's kind of what I was getting at, as you mentioned, kind of, you know, get him a couple carries early in the game to see if he kind of gets going that at least gets him involved early, not, you know, not to get in the second quarter and just keep force feeding him because you need him like involved and engaged. But that that's a good answer. One of the things that I thought was fascinating was like, if you're not going to use him that much, why not let him return kicks? I know they didn't let him return kicks because they thought he was going to be on the field a lot more but, like, yeah. I don't see well, anybody putting Drummond out there, particularly with the way you have a receiver. Drummond was returning punts for much of the night last night. I would just put Ely out there. You don't, I don't want Drummond tweaking something on a punt return. And they might address that next week. You know, I imagine you go into a game. There's so much stuff going on. The last thing on their mind is who's returning punts based on injuries. Yeah. But I'm curious if you might see that just because you nope, know, see, he is kind of a home run hitter in some ways. Like on, I mean, he returned a couple of kickoffs prior to this year. I think I can't remember how he's, many he's gotten two. With you in uh, like South
0: Alabama or something the year before, or Southeastern or something like. That. He's had two kick returns. Uh, I want keep drumming at punt. I uh, I want someone to go raise their hand, catch the ball, hand it to. That's also, that I didn't think about that. That's a good. Yeah, point. That's a good point. But I, know, I know what you're saying though. Like, let's get him in the special teams and on kickoff return. I completely agree with you. Like, throw him back there. He's he is dynamic as hell when he's got a full head of steam. Uh, punting wise. Fair catch that shit. Give it back to the offense. Go score for me. Don't care. <laughs> but no, you are is that 100%. an analytics
1: deal, or is that just your preference? No, no, opinion? no,
0: no, no. That's my preference. My preference. I mean, you saw what happened with Tennessee. That True. God drops it. Basically, gives Ole Miss a touchdown. I don't. Shocker, know who's
1: around the football on that play too? Tyler Knight. <laughs> oh,
0: shocker. Um, As you
1: mentioned, you can't build a team with him. But man, what a good guy to have around.
0: Um. Yes, he just continues to make play after play. It's, it's awesome to see. He's such a great kid. But just me personally, I don't ever want to see that ever. <laughs> give me the guy who is so sure-handed that he's either going to let the ball drop because he's smart enough to know when to not catch it, or when it's in the air, he's going to catch it and just give the ball to the offense. I don't care. Um, even unless it's Devin Hester, catch the damn ball, give it to the offense, especially <laughs> if you have one as dynamic as Ole
1: Miss does. Fair enough. You know, we probably did the defense a disservice going 45 minutes or however long we have without really bringing them up. But really, as we kind of dive deeper into this game, Ole Miss won this game for two reasons, Matt Corral and the way the defense played. And it was, I don't know if you'd call it encouraging to see like from an Ole Miss perspective or just really kind of what you needed to do. I don't really know how to gauge like how important or massive it was to them. But man, the defense, I think, got four stops in the first half. And the fact that I'm kind of, I guess, expressing a little bit of disbelief in that probably shows you where they're at. But man, Ole Miss scored seven points in the second half and won this game. And before the year, if you're kind of, I like doing the odds things where last week, where I was like, what if I told you Ole Miss gave up 14 points in the first, what was 37 minutes of games? Like you would take that every time if i told you before the season old miss is on the road at tennessee and they're up 24 to 9 and the offense only scores one time in the second half would you guess they won or lost the game because my answer would be lose but yeah. I, it's just it really is a credit to them i don't really like this is the type of game where i'm kind of looking at the stats and i think they gave up what i think it ended up being i want to make sure i have this correct i think they gave uh 500 no 467 total yards like That's not great, but you'll take that every time. I think in the modern day and age of college football, the whole like total yards thing is somewhat overrated. You don't want to be giving up 670 like they gave up last week. But like, to me, like 400 is the new 325 or 350 or 450 (laughs) is the new 350 type of thing with the way things are going. I guess we'll start here because I had a couple of notes for you on, on the defensive side. One, great performance overall. Two, Jake Springer makes a difference. I knew watching that game the first time, um, I was with a group of guys on a golf trip, but we were in a room, the volume was on. I was about as optimal of a watching situation as as I could be in. So I was paying pretty close attention the first time. But when I went and watched the game back through today, I wanted to watch Jake Springer just to see how big of an impact he made. And I think it's a hell of a lot more than even showed up in the box score. I think I made the point to you last week that or maybe it was in a solo thing on Wednesday, maybe getting Jake Springer back will make them more inclined to to blitz because they trust the back end more. It's actually, no, they blitzed more because Jake Springer gets back there and he actually gets home a lot. He played incredible. I'm just curious your thoughts on him because we had not seen him since the Louisville game. And it's hard to get a sense of guy after one game. What did you think of how he played?
0: (laughs) Well, Last week, I said that uh, Jake Springer's not Earl Thomas, so I don't give a shit if he's not playing. The defense needs to step up. Uh, I'll, I'll eat my words on that one. Well, he's he, not Earl Thomas. You don't have he's to eat still it, not Earl Maybe Thomas. eat half yeah. of it. I, I, he still is not. Yeah, that I'll eat half of him. How about that? that that's fair. Um, but he, he really seems to make a difference from a lot of phases on that defense. Um, I watched him in practice all last year. And I'll be completely honest, nothing about what he did really stood out to me. I thought he was very good at everything, not elite at anything. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I'm not completely wrong in that assessment because I think his his pass defense, uh, we'll get to the pass defense in a little bit. But he, when the pads are on, the lights are on, there's players like that. He is a completely different player. Whenever he's out there on Saturdays, he is physical as hell. He's an incredibly smart football player, which has never been a doubt from him. And he lets everyone else be more confident in what they're doing. So, yeah, I didn't. He's still not, you know, a first round draft pick by any means, but just from a scheme fit, he is probably why they've switched this defense to the what it is the 326. When you have a guy playing that position, you can let Otis play what he's doing at like the star strong safety linebacker kind of deal. They knew that this was going to be the strength of their team. And when they were all fully healthy, it works perfectly. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. And we've seen it this year where Spur hasn't played four games in a row. So that's something you have to address. But when he's out there, he made a ridiculous difference in what this team can do.
1: I think you hit on two really fascinating things there. And I never thought about the aspect you talked about with, he gives everyone else more confidence in what they're doing. I imagine in such a violent game and kind of fast free flying game that football is having a guy that plays with, this is such a like 1990s, 2000s announcer term, but reckless abandon. Like he reminds (laughs) me kind of like the, you know, there you need a little psycho on your football defense. In some ways he's like, the baseball outfielder that really just has no regard for his body and is going to smash 200 miles an hour into a wall in a June day game, just because that's how he's wired. And that's what he does. But I've never thought about the infectious result, like the infectious effect to use a terrible phrase (laughs) that that has on other people, but he does play like that. He's a hell of a lot. I mean, watching the second, the game a second time today, he's fun as shit to watch. I mean, that dude flies at people. It's like, if you could put that man like if Tyler Knight had his size you'd have two of those psychos out there. Like right. he just absolutely <laughs> flies around and I never thought about the effect that would have on other guys. And then the second part of that was I've written countless times throughout the off-season season they realized going to the 326 would get their best 11 guys on the field because they had more depth in the secondary. They felt pretty good about Taishim Johnson and it just seemed like they want to get their best players on the field. What I never thought about, because we'd only seen one game of him, was Jake Springer being kind of that X factor. And that position he plays, while it's a different defense in terms of importance and value, is kind of like the Tony Conner Husky. Tony Conner kind of made yep. that 2014-2015 defense. He was incredibly important, and we he went out, they had a much better talent to Overcome his loss, but they were not the same defense when he was on the field versus off. I think that's part of why the 2016 defense struggled so much because, and it's a sad story that I've tried to write about a couple of times. I just can't find Tony Conner; he's like a ghost. But he just wasn't the same player when he came back from that meniscus. But I just never thought about Jake Springer kind of being the reason they went to that three-two-six and being the heart and soul to use the term. I just. After watching last night, how much of your opinion changed about his importance? I know you hit on it just a second ago, and that was basically my original question. But, like, is it crazy to say he's the most important player to have on the field on a down-by-down basis? Because, to me, again, small sample size, it's either him or Chance Campbell.
0: Yeah, it's crazy that you brought up Tony Conner 2016 because that's exactly what I was thinking about, what this defense looked like without Springer on the field because when they lost Tony Conner's ability to do what he does, which was everything, <laughs> right, it completely changed the mindset of the defense. I, I think he is clearly incredibly important, not only to the defense, but to Durkin because it is clear that they did a lot of different things against Tennessee than we saw against Arkansas. And I think a product of that was how much more confident Durkin is calling different schemes, different blitzes with Springer in the game compared to someone like Trey Washington or Tyson Johnson, true freshman that maybe they don't have a complete grasp of what we're doing. When you have Springer in there, you have that 11 of guys that all know exactly what they're supposed to do. You can do things like twist stunt blitzes and fire blitzes and safety blitzes when you know the guys in the back end know exactly what they're doing and you're so much more confident in them. It Springer is definitely an incredibly good player and has proven that these two games that he's he's better than even I thought he was, which is I'm not that smart, but it's clear that the overall defense is so much better with him because Durkin trusts that
1: group to do what he wants them to do. Yeah, and it's not even really eating your words. I know we joked about that a second ago, but we'd only seen him play four quarters of football. He's right. a kid that had to sit last year. He's a service academy kid. You mentioned seeing him in practice and being like, this guy does a lot of things good, but nothing really stands out. There's no way to know. Um, yeah, I, I'll be, I would be actually be kind of an interesting exercise to go back and watch. You mentioned them doing different things to go back and watch the Louisville game this time around and see if they were – a little more on that playing, being a little more creative in the impact he actually had in that game. First game, there was so much stuff going on. Like, you just never really thought about it.
0: The targeting stuff, like, completely flipped that game uh, on its head with this whatever whatever happened. I mean, early in that game, he was making plays all over the place. I mean, he probably should have been kicked out for targeting like three times, honestly. Uh, But it was really hard to kind of get a a real feel – for what was going on in that game defensively, because of all that kind of crap. But you are right. Looking back on it, there has to be a correlation to what they did against Louisville against Tennessee as
1: well. So, what is the from to kind of kind of tee you up like right where right in your sweet spot here? What is the ability for that guy? Because it's not only he gets like there's guys that blitz, and then there's guys that seem like they frequently get home. And I'm curious if that's something you're able to try to measure in the evaluation process. And then the other aspect of it to me, kind of a novice is the speed in which he detects a run because he got lined up pretty far back, like 15, 20 yards off the ball sometimes. And when he, once it was clear that it was going to be a run play, the ground he covers to get in the mix and get in on the play was kind of fascinating to me. It was really kind of amazing to watch is that, Something at all you guys try to detect in the evaluation process and what is that that allows him to, one, get home and, two, kind of have that, I guess, quickness to close that much ground very quickly, if that makes any sense at all.
0: I mean, you can use all the the fancy terms, like, just evaluating-wise that you want. Um, Just his instincts, just sheer football instincts are incredibly high. So he's able to kind of see what's going on detect it, and then attack, basically. And you can tell on film who has that and who doesn't. And you call it football instincts, and that might sound like a buzzword, but that's just the reality of the deal. That's what it is. He closes space incredibly well. He reminds me a lot of he's not the same player as Grant Delpit, but when Grant Delpit was healthy, nobody closed space like him. He was all over the place playing single high for LSU. He could literally spot it attack it, detect it. Jamal Adams was the exact same way. He's probably more of a Jamal Adams type with the blitzing. You know, don't really want you one-on-one with John Mechie, but I definitely want you taking on a running back in, in blitz uh, pickup. Uh, but he's so good at blitzing because one, he's physical. He's smart. He knows timing on what his blitz is, and he has such loose hips that he's not going to get stiff and just run all the way past the play and not be able to turn and Redirect. He can just bend his body if he needs to get around a tackle, kind of close that hole quickly. Um, and that's we've talked about before. Being able to have loose hips and not be stiff is a absolute paramount uh, attribute for any defender. Uh, and he definitely is very, very loose hipped, very physical, and that definitely helps blitzing, especially off the edge.
1: The defense as a whole was about as good as you could ask to start this game. Um, They forced back to back punts. And in fairness to them, the first nine points of the game were not really on them. Like they get Ole Miss scores, they get a stop. And you're thinking, okay. And I thought it was vitally important for Ole Miss to get a good off to a good start in this game. And it feels so stupid to say each time, but in that environment, you get down like 10, nothing or 14, nothing. I wouldn't have loved Ole Miss's chances, particularly as banged up as they were and how they were having to use the quarterback run as often as they did to chase that game. They get a second stop and then Ole Miss turns it over on, no, excuse me. Ole Miss turned over on downs after the first stop. But then after the second one, Ole Miss uh, gets a safety where Corral throws its grounding in the end zone, but it's really six, one, half dozen, the other, it was either a safety or he get called for grounding. They, would they rather him have held onto the ball in that situation? Because what are the odds that just ends up in a fat guy's belly and it turns into seven?
0: It's tough because uh, you know Snoop was right there and an right. eligible receiver, but it didn't get past the line of scrimmage. So I think you know what he was trying to do, and he kind of did it earlier in the game where he switched the ball to his left hand and just spiked it at Parrish's uh, feet. Yeah, yeah that's they tough. discussed
1: for grounding too, and I was like, you got to be kidding me! I watched Alabama no, do this twelve no. times.
0: Yeah, and it kind of—it's always—it's grounding is such a weird rule. I mean, they they, they threw it on him when he uh, threw the ball over the head of—they uh, had like three guys, and he threw it just out of balance over all of them, and he was still in the tackle box. But it was clearly going towards the receiver, yeah. but just kind of out of the way a little bit. I could not believe they threw that. It's such a weird rule. Um, but yeah, I don't—I don't know. I mean, I guess—I don't know what would you rather him do? Would you rather him just? eat
1: it and just say, fuck, oh, we lost this. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't know. I can't decide. I was just curious, but yeah. So I don't know. they so they get the safety and then the way the kick return goes, Tennessee starts that drive in plus territory. So they score and it's nine to seven. But I thought the biggest part if you want to talk about the defense collectively, they got to stop in every big moment when that game could have gotten sideways and the crowd really, really could have kind of taken over and Ole Miss have gotten Lost in the moment, I guess, is probably not the greatest way to describe it, but just to some degree lost in the moment. Um, you know, I I what I'm I guess the kind of the best way to articulate that is like uh, I'm just going through the examples here. Tennessee scores to make it 21, nine, twenty-four to nineteen. Ole Miss does not I'm trying to think here 24-19. The ESPN play by play sucks. Ole Miss gets stopped. They miss a field goal. It's the Caden Costa field goal missed, right? And you're thinking, oh hell, like. This could be bad. They get a stop there. They got off the field. It wasn't always pretty. Uh, I believe that was the one where Hooker threw a horrible ball down the left sideline, probably a miscommunication with the receiver. But when you're watching in live action, it was like, what the hell is, what the hell is he doing? And they miss a long field goal. And then Ole Miss answers to score a touchdown. And that game's entirely different at 31 19 than it was with Tennessee, getting the ball back again, later in that game, further eating into your depth up 24 to 19. Um, You know, I actually thought the worst moment they had in the game was allowing, gifting Tennessee three points. Uh, You know, Tennessee had the ball on like their own 10 or something ridiculous with 28 seconds left and got three points out of the deal. I, I didn't think that was their finest moment by any stretch. But outside of that, they got every huge stop they needed to to kind of keep that game from unraveling might be the best way to put it. There were several times, and it was the same way on offense. Corral had several third downs. You're we like, shit, if he doesn't get this, like, this, this could really, really get squirrely. And it came all the way down to the 23-and-a-half-yard play on fourth and 24. And, hell, they should never have been put in that position afterwards. I just – from a confidence building standpoint this has got to be a kind of a watershed moment for this team i know it wasn't perfect but what did you just think of the clutch stops for the lack of a better phrase and what that could do for the confidence of this group going forward because that was huge stuff in the second half yeah i mean they played
0: very very well um i think a lot of it is credit to Durkin mixing some things up to the players actually making some plays you know that that's something they were lacking last week and you know, Tennessee still ran like 68, seven, almost 70 plays. So they were it's still a shit ton of plays.
1: And they ran uh, for 200 yards, but it was 50 attempts. So, like, yeah. you got to kind of just not yeah. be blinded by the yardage there, too. And
0: that's what they put, that's their whole plan the whole time. I, that that's they know that they're going to give up some yards. That's not the issue. It's making the stops. And they did it with pretty consistent effort all night. Um, I thought Tennessee's offensive line looked completely outmanned for the majority of that game against the three rushers. Uh, I think one of their guys, got, Cade Mays, got hurt, or the brother got hurt. I can't remember which.
1: It one was Cade, it was. and Ole Miss really attacked that. Afterwards.
0: Yeah, and Sam Williams has not had a great year, but if you are going to give him someone that's not capable of playing on the field, he's going to eat their ass the entire game. I mean, he and that's what he did to that guy. He uh, completely, completely killed him. And you could tell he had confidence. And that's something you haven't seen from him was he kept beating his guy, beating that guy, beating that guy. And he was like, I can just do this all night if I have to. You know, then that's going to be the case. Um, Quentin Bivens played very well towards the end of that game. Um, I, I thought Hooker really helped Ole Miss because he's, his pocket awareness was just horrific the entire game. I mean, he was – just running into the back of his own offensive lineman. He was really, really helping Ole Miss's pass rush by just sitting in the pocket, staying there. And then when he got outside of the pocket, never had his head downfield, never was looking to make a play, was just looking to run for five yards and get out of bounds. Um, but that's a credit to the Ole Miss defense playing well in the back end, which is something I was very nervous about going to this game. They played
1: awesome. And you got to give credit to them after last week coming back on the road and playing like that. To me, one of the drives that epitomized this uh, this uh Ole Miss defense and kind of the maybe the best version of it, and I know this is a simplistic way to put it, but I was re-watching the game today, and this really stuck out to me. So Ole Miss kicks a field goal to go up 10-9. The red zone drive kind of stalled out. And, of course, you're up a point, but you feel a hell of a lot different had Ole Miss punched that thing in the end zone and gotten up 14-9. So you're thinking, well, this is a huge driver in this game because Tennessee scores, and – I mean, you're basically down a touchdown, right? They're probably going for two. They may not have been chasing the game at that point. But to that point, had Tennessee scored at that drive, you were thinking, wow, Ole Miss had an opportunity here to really kind of create separation early in this game. And all of a sudden you're going to look up and they're down 17-10. to 10. But yeah. that didn't happen. Tennessee went three and out. And I believe they the net on that drive was negative 17 yards. And it went halfway productive run. I think they got two. Springer sack where he just comes – a bull rushing down the left side and gets him. And then on third, that sets up a third and long there was a penalty mixed in too, but Cedric Williams and Sam Williams both got to Hendon hooker and really shut down that play before anything that got going. And like that, like light bulb kind of went off in my mind watching that this morning was like, that's kind of like, if you're talking about more aggression, fully healthy, and get the best version of that, that's the kind of stuff they're going to need to do to get stops. And those are the people they're going to need, to need to get it from, right? We talked about the guys out there needing to play better. To me, that epitomized that. And I thought just thought that was an important moment in the game. And then, I mean, pick your important moment in the second half. They got every stop necessary, and it wasn't always pretty. This is probably as good a time as any, to Fourth down and 24. They get 23 and a half yards. I'm curious on this, and I didn't get to this play in my rewatch. We started recording right before I actually got to it. It was like, we're going to lock in on it. But I remember thinking in the moment, fourth down and 24, I think they had just gotten a sack or some sort of negative yardage play right before. (laughs) Why sit back with six back or eight deep on that? Why not try to send one person because there's so much room to work with? Yeah. This this is a dumb question, but why not treat that like the wall defense, like the Hail Mary at end of halves or end of games where they have to get to a certain point and you know they can't do anything if they get short of it. Why not send like five and have the other seven guys just keep everything in front of them? I know that's simplistic, but just your thoughts on how that was played in the result.
0: Yeah, I, you're not wrong. I I think you got to send at least one more. Um, I, it's really frustrating because I've watched that play so many times. They had it on the replay during the game, but like Momo, the linebackers, there's no reason to not be backpedaling and getting back to the to the first down marker immediately. And Momo like sits there and hesitates, like the quarterback's gonna run and ends up getting the ball thrown right over his head. It was a little
1: late. Yeah, that's it's a good so point.
0: late on that. And that's just you know, if he backs up and keeps backing up, like the quarterback's not even gonna make that throw because he knows he doesn't have it, but he saw that he had this split second, he's like, screw it four and 24 let's rip it right to where we think it's going to play where we think it's going to be and they got it they almost got it of course <laughs> um but i i would send one more guy to put a little bit more pressure on them run a stunt kind of get the offensive line confused um and then just keep backing up and keep everything in front of you uh, it's so hard it's not such a hindsight thing you know but i completely agree with what you're saying send a guy and then just back your ass up and get everything in front of you. And they didn't do a very good job of that, but you didn't get it. So who cares?
1: (laughs) What did you think in live action of the, uh, of the fourth down? Like I thought in live in real time, I was like, Oh, he got that. This is about to be a disaster. Cause had he gotten that I'm sitting there thinking they're about to go down and win this game. But in the end, it's the same crew that had the state debacle this year, the same crew that had the Auburn debacle last year, Mark curls, crew. In the end, I think they probably got it right. I think we were all fooled in in real time about the ball being in in his right hand when it was actually in his left. And, of course, this will transition into everything that was chunked on the field. But just what were you thinking, like, when that play happened the first time? And then it seemed fairly obvious to me upon review. They were not going to overturn it, and it wasn't even an inconclusive thing. I thought he was probably – I know there wasn't a great angle, but – I thought he was actually probably short. I thought the guy was actually a decent spot. What did you think?
0: I think he was probably short. Uh, I thought the spot was pretty favorable to Ole Miss. Okay, Just looking at it from the TV angle, it looked like he got it. It looked like he got right on the 40-yard line or wherever it was and was uh, going to be a first down, but they marked him short. I think he was definitely short when you look at the replays. The ball was in his left hand, like by his hip. If it was in his right arm, it's a first down 100%. But from where they spotted it, where it looked like the ball actually ended up when his shin hit the ground, he looked short. And it would have been... Something else that they were going to overturn it with the looks they had because they did not have a look from the sideline angle of right. where the ball was and where the first down marker was. There was absolutely nothing they could have done to overturn that call. So from where they marked it to where they saw in video, I think it was the right call. But it definitely looked like it was a first down from the from when I was watching on TV.
1: Yeah, I thought the same thing, and it was it was what a wild ending to that game. And then you have the whole you know, throwing stuff on the field and they, well, there was like a 25 minute delay in real time. And I'm sure everyone, like that, that these are the type of moments that bother me from a social media standpoint, because like, you're not making some sort of like noble defiant point saying it's like bad to throw stuff on the field, but then you even have like credentialed Tennessee media people being like, this is terrible, but this is coming from a place of terrible frustration after 15 years. It's like, dude, like, come what? on! You're throwing stuff at the. I saw like, that shit. I just like I, I, I yes, I understand it. Like I, it. I don't even. There's so many places I could go on this, right? Like, try. I, I'm like trying to collect myself because i I wanted to get into a rant about this. So you bad. want me to I start?
0: Mean, you want to collect yourself? Yeah, no no one else stuff?
1: can see my face, but you can see my face. I'm like getting yeah. ahead of my words. I have so many thoughts on this. Yes, it's a terrible look. It's bad for the safety of the players, right? Like the whole like.
0: The golf ball thing is not funny.
1: No, it's, it's not. not. It's bad. Like, it's it's very, very bad. But I have, like, a – like, I, I might not be going in the direction you necessarily think. I, I Every fan does – like, it, this happens, right? Like, it's one thing to do the whole booing and, in, like, cheering for an injury or something where people get very upset on Twitter. And, yes, is it kind of a ruthless, like, you know – Not a great thing to do, sure, but it's different when you're throwing stuff on the field because that's actually, and I'm not like a nerd safety guy, but like that's actually like affecting the safety of players and coaches and stuff. That's very, very bad. That can get dangerous in a hurry. Throwing a golf ball onto the field, something that I've I've held a golf ball a time or two, that shit's heavy. (laughs) Like that, that's a terrible look. Throwing the objects onto the playing surface for these guys playing, quote unquote, for free in particular is a terrible look. And I don't – I would like to not see it excused at all.
0: Yeah, uh, there's so many different ways to take this entire story. Um, I'll start with saying the first thing, yeah, a horrible, horrible, horrible look for Tennessee. Um, However, the idea that Tennessee is the only place that ever happened in college football is bullshit. Oldness could do this in a heartbeat. They Alabama. did it in
1: basketball last year, and I don't yeah. mean to be that guy, but it happens. I was pretty. at the
0: game. It ha- yeah, I it was at everywhere. that game. It, ha- it can happen anywhere and everywhere. Just the – it's late. People, people are, are drunk. drunk. Their a call was questionable and didn't go their way. And once you see one or two people doing it, that liquid courage comes and then you start doing it. Not saying it's okay because it's not. And I've already brought up that – if that golf ball hits someone in the head, you can do some serious, serious damage. Nothing about that's funny, and I thought Kiffin, to his credit, handled the entire situation as perfectly as you could.
1: He put that Excellent. thing in his pocket like a breakfast ball off the first tee. He knew it; like it was like it was that's, great. It was smooth.
0: Yeah, but it is definitely when he started to take it seriously. When he saw it hit him, he turns to the ref and like, Like this is like this went from kind of funny and like maybe we'll start trolling them to this is like a serious issue like this cannot keep happening. Um, It's just so messed up my biggest frustration with this is the precedent that was set on the field that any stadium can do this and stop the game for 20 minutes without a single fucking thing happening. To the home team.
1: It's a good point. I hadn't thought about that.
0: And we, t- I, I tweeted you and Bracken because I know Bracken's a big basketball guy. And this happens if this happens in a basketball game, it's a tech, it's a technical foul on the home team, and it, I think it's happened at Duke once or twice where Coach K had to yell at the students, which he does loves to do anyway. But Self-serving it, moment
1: for K, but yes, of
0: course, exactly. But th- there's a real consequences in real time, and that didn't happen. So now it's you're looking at this and. Let's say, for instance, Arkansas didn't like what they're seeing from the refs against Auburn, which I heard was a horribly officiated game. I didn't watch a lot of it. They can just start throwing shit on the field and stop the game, change the momentum, and nothing happens to them. That was the craziest thing about it all. I thought there was going to be a flag, or they might just call the game because of the situation. Yes, you cannot control 100,000 people. But there has to be something put into the rules. You can't do this again. You can't have this happen again. In soccer, they kick the fans out for the next game. That'll never happen in college football, just from the money. Like, that'll never happen. But there has been no judgment made. Money fine
1: does nothing. Sankey put out a firm statement, which I thought fixed everything.
0: Okay, yeah, real firm. And, you know, Sankey's done pretty well at what he's done. But he's going to have to – I don't know who it's going to be. Someone's going to have to be a really, really bad guy, and Post your child. and it's going to be either the president of Tennessee, the athletic director of Tennessee, who it definitely won't be. Um, Danny White ain't doing shit, <laughs> or it's going to have to be Sankey. I don't know who it's going to be because I, and I don't. That's but I don't want it to be a Tennessee thing. This has to be a uh, SEC-wide college football-wide thing setting a precedent that you cannot do this and expect for your team not to be penalized or your fan base not to be penalized because you're one golf ball away from hitting a trainer a player your own ball boy on that side from you could take someone's eye out you could give someone a concussion you could it just it's so bad and so not as funny as i think twitter wants it to seem something has to be done it's crazy
1: it really yeah you're exactly right and you know, it's, it's I, last night when I was on the post-game show, and this was, you know, 15 minutes after the game ends, and I hadn't really had time to, like, process a lot of what I thought about it. And I'm not – I mean, I know you're like me, but, like, I'm not someone that, like, loves to get on, like, social media and feign outrage over something. Like you mentioned, every fan base probably would do or has done. Like, this has probably happened at all 14 SEC schools if you went back through the bowels of history at some point. But at the same time, Chase asked me if I thought what I thought about it and if I thought they were going to call the game. And I was like, no, I didn't think they were ever going to call the game because of Tennessee having three timeouts left and whatever. You just clean the crap up and then you finish the game out. But actually, I kind of – I'm not sure if I changed my opinion, but I kind of for a second felt dumb for saying it, watching it a second time today on the replay from – the sheer amount of stuff that was being thrown on the field, the sheer amount of time that it was being thrown on the field consistently and the general amount of time that they just, look, I know it's a complicated situation and I know it's not necessarily precedented in terms of you don't deal with this a ton, but they left the players and coaches out there for 20 minutes. They didn't put them in the tunnel or do anything to protect them. And it thought, that was the most striking thing to me about them not calling the game because I was like, why don't I get them off the field, kind of get the situation under control, um, whether I don't know how you do that, but at least let things mellow out because I promise you the part time guy that's wearing a, a badge and a vest and a yellow jacket is not going to actually do anything to calm the situation, but just let it play out, bring them back on the field or something and get it done. But I was just stunned. By the fact that they let them out on the field and the amount of time that passed, where I was almost changing my opinion. I was a little shocked they didn't call the game. Whereas I'll ask you if Tennessee has one timeouts or no timeouts left, do you think that thing gets called? Because I would probably answer yes.
0: Uh, I I don't know. I you might have like a legitimate riot on your hands. Yes. With that many students who are drunk and looking to do something stupid, if they would have just called that game right there, I mean, that, you don't, okay, you know, I didn't think what, about that. Yeah, I mean, seriously, you don't know. No, what you're happened. right. Happened. All it takes is for one idiot to jump on the field or something, and then you have like a real instant on your hands. Not including the Lane Kiffin back in Tennessee. I mean, most of these fans are not maniacs, but I, I've been a student. No, I would never do anything like that. But I know some people that might. <laughs> If they're at home, they lost a game, they feel like they've been cheated. It just – I mean, it just got so serious pretty quickly, and there was a lot of people trying to play, uh, you know, figure out what to do. I mean, the leader of the Mississippi Mafia, John Miller out there. (laughs) You'll never (laughs) see John Miller. John Miller, if he's front and center on a camera during a football game, something is
1: very, very, very wrong. That does sound mob bosses. I kind of like it.
0: Yeah, and that is uh, exactly what we got. It's just a crazy deal. I, I don't know what to think about it. I'm fascinated to see what comes of it. Um,
1: I'm not I sure don't anything really, comes of it.
0: I don't I, – that's my – Probably fine,
1: but that, does, does that count? Nothing. Exactly.
0: It's abs- unless it's like a $2 million fine, like a, hey, don't do this again. <laughs> that – I mean, that'll make a real difference, but if it's like a storming the field $250,000 deal, it, it does nothing.
1: Yeah, so, and the other part awesome. of that was – and to kind of go back now that I have a little more – Clarity on just, like, what I was trying to say. The Like, I, I quote tweeted that last night. I probably should have just put my phone in my pocket because has been a long day playing golf, some beverages consumed. But, like, Wes <laughs> Rucker, the, the Tennessee 247 guy, who I don't know. I'm sure he's very good at his job. I'm not, like, trying to, like, crap on the guy. But him being like, this is terrible, but it's coming from 15 years of frustration. It's like, one dude, a good chunk of the guys, throw do, people throwing stuff out there are – we three to six years old, 15 years ago. Like they don't remember, they don't care. Like no. and the other part of that is like any butts or like, Hey, this is the context to it. Like, it's just, you're, you're exposing yourself. Like there's no, there's no way to just say, Hey, yeah, I get it. I know this is bad, but here's why they're doing it. It's like, come on, man. Like you're a credentialed member of media and you're sitting there going 15 years of frustration. It's a football game. Who cares? SEC officiating is bad across the board. Each team outside of probably Alabama has some sort of sob story where they were screwed by SEC officiating. That's not any sort of like conspiracy against Tennessee or some sort of remote justification or even color or context that needs to be added to the situation of why golf balls and mustard are being thrown at players on the field. Like it, it's a joke. But the second part of that is this is more of like a social, this is probably designated for another podcast where I just rant by myself when I can't fill time with a guest. but like the whole like social media thing of like terrible look for Tennessee, like worst fan base ever. It's like, I don't understand that because this would, this would happen anywhere. And you mentioned like, like being a student, being 20 years old. And like, it's easy to say you would never do it. And I mean, a collective you, not you. Like, I don't think it's great. I think it's a terrible look. I think it's a terrible thing to do, but 22 year old me, quite a few whiskeys deep that sees 50 people throwing stuff on the field. I probably wouldn't do it, but I can't like a hundred percent guarantee that 22 year old me seeing 50 bottles thrown around me wouldn't just get in on the action and throw it somewhere, whether it's aimed on the field or, you know yeah. what I mean? Like oh, yeah. And now I'm sitting there circling back saying I'm justifying it. I'm just saying like <laughs> this would happen, could and can happen anywhere. And my least favorite word, and it honestly cracks me up, whether it's the internet sphere in general is the word class. Like, I don't understand what the word class actually means. Like oh, you're either yeah. a decent acting like a decent human being or you're not. And we're all kind of animals in some ways. And we all have flaws and we all act shitty in certain moments, but the whole like keep it classy thing. I don't understand that. That's to me, that's just the dumbest thing ever. When someone says like classless or classy as always, that's a dead giveaway that you're just kind of relishing the moment to kind of feign outrage because you'd love being offended online. To me, that's just complete crap because this would, this could and would happen anywhere. So this is not uniquely a Tennessee thing. I think that's an important context that. And Unless you have any more thoughts, they've probably spent way too much time talking about stuff being thrown on the field. But the last thing I'll offer you, who the hell is bringing mustard to a game? I know it's an old man move to bring hot sauce in your back pocket everywhere. Where's the man getting a bottle of mustard? Did he run to the concession thing and was like, Hold right. on, I'm out of ammo and chunked it? Like, what, 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 What's your take on the mustard being thrown? How does that work?
0: My my guess that that's my guess is I mean remember it's twenty minutes I think some yeah they had a lot of time to
1: throw it yeah
0: I mean they could they usually close down the concessions during the fourth quarter somebody ran in there jumped over a a counter took a bottle of mustard and just chunked it Um, that was probably my favorite thing I saw also the balls of somebody clearly in the line of sight of Lane Kiffin and two cops just throwing a water bottle full of – On the way out, and he do On the way out. Like, that takes some real balls. You, they can easily get you arrested because you're just in the line of sight. I mean, came right from in front of them. And then, obviously, who the hell has a golf ball? I mean, all of the above. It was pretty amazing, just the whole scene. And, we're, like, I think we're both agreeing. We're not, like, clutching our pearls over this whole deal – like some people are, I mean, it was a shit show. And I think the way it was handled was a shit show. And it looks like the outcome of it's going to be a shit show. And that's just the reality of the situation. Um, you can laugh at some things while also realizing that this was not cool and could have been a lot worse. Um, I think that's enough on it. But I do think that, as along with the game, that this was a crazy story. And I think we've covered it the time adequately, adequately because it's crazy.
1: It was bizarre though, right? Because when you, you've seen this happen before in sports, but I think the length of time made this unique, right? Because I'm sure I would, you, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure you were probably like me, where it's like, ah, this is not a great look. Some couple idiots threw some stuff on the field. They'll get it cleaned up and Ole Miss will try to salt away this game. And then it just kept going and going and going and going. Where after like five minutes, I was like, this is getting really, really ugly. And that yeah. wasn't even halfway through. I was kind of taken aback and amazed by the amount of time it transpired. I mean, that was – look, I know I just kind of crapped on everyone for saying, like, classes, and it's an ugly look. And it is an ugly look. It's just not unique to Tennessee. This happens with drunk sports fans everywhere. Okay. But it's, it's worse than your typical someone, couple guys throw some shit on the field, they clean it up, the game ends. That, that was – you mentioned a borderline riot. That was brewing on something being beyond the normal trashing of the field, if that makes any sense. That was weird. Yeah.
0: Well, I didn't realize you're kind of watching on TV and then the camera kind of pans to the sideline and you see how many bottles of water, yeah. how many things were thrown. And that's why I got so mad at like, I understand Heupel saying it and the athletic director saying it. We're like, you know, we don't want to let a few fans ruin this experience. I, You can't just throw your fan base it's on a the bus. It's a great point. It's I'm not a few. From the Tennessee f- f- side, I get that but do not mistake it. This was not a few fans doing this. There were no less than 500 pieces of shit thrown on the field. I mean, there was so much trash thrown on the field. It was not a few fans. It was not from just the student section. It it was a whole ring on the Tennessee sideline, the end zone, the Ole Miss sideline. It was from everybody. It was a collective impressive effort of bullshit. And, um, Uh, it just was insane. Absolutely. Like I said, this is the dumbest football game I've ever watched in my entire life. It
1: lasted four and a half hours. (laughs) I mean, the game game was four and a half hours from start to finish. It was, it, it was, it really was. You're right though. That's a great point. It's like, you know, you can usually play off. Let's not let the actions of a few ruin things for everyone else. And it's like, that was not a few. I saw the amount of trash. It was an ugly scene, but kind of to wrap things up before we get around to the around the SEC stuff, the the game should have pretty much ended right there. If I were Lane, I'd have been lobbying it for the end, but I meant like Ole Miss getting the ball back. Like that game should have never really been in the balance the way it was. And I, the part of that, I guess what I mean is, even though Tennessee had three timeouts left and Ole Miss doesn't get the fourth down, that should have never gotten to the 20-yard line with them having a realistic shot to win. The first question I'll pose to you is, I don't really blame Ole Miss for the way they handled the fourth down thing, or the not the fourth down, the last drive. Like, salting away a game is hard, particularly when you're an up-tempo offense. But what did you make of the way things transpired after that? The first thing I'll ask you, why was that football not punted out of bounds? Why would you give them a chance to return?
0: I saw you tweet that, and I thought the exact same thing. I cannot believe they didn't put the ball out of bounds
1: given never even mentioned it afterwards. He just said something about the return. I was just, I, that was bizarre to me. I thought figured in hindsight, he'd been like, yeah, we should have punted it out of bounds. That was weird.
0: Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I, th- that happens all the time where they don't do it when you should have. And there's a very, you know, it's very possible they told him to do it and he just kind of didn't do it. I mean, punting, I've never done it, but it's not exactly the easiest thing to just be like ball going there. Um So, I don't know. That was a crucial special teams mistake. Um, Either you've got to punt the ball so high in the air that you force him to fair catch it, or you just accept losing 10 yards and punt the ball straight out of bounds. I I couldn't believe that they did
1: that. Well, that's the thing. You won Mac Brown, even though he seldom uses, one of the better punters in college football. Um, Absolutely. And even if he – just say he cold-blooded shanks it. They're getting the ball at worst at the 35 with no timeouts left versus where did they start the 40 what? It was 40, make sure I have this right, 47. They started at midfield basically, and so that's what I didn't understand. Mac Brown is one of the best, like I mentioned, best punters in the country. I like his odds to kind of angle it out of bounds and get him inside the 20, but even if he shanks it, it's probably the 35 at worst unless he really does something that defies physics. And I just didn't understand giving them the opportunity to return the ball. And then after that, they're just on their heels. I, from what you remember, what did you just make of the last? The Scorecast is telling me this was only five plays. i probably, they're probably right, but my God, it felt like 12. What did you just make of the final drive? I didn't feel like it should have ever gotten to that point, but uh, man, what an idiot for running the ball too.
0: Whoa. Wow. Talk the <laughs> lack that of just a word.
1: brain fart. How does that work? I, I, uh, to, I mean, he stopped the Lamar, clock, but it was at zero.
0: If you remember Lamar Jackson did it against Clemson in like 15 or 16, he, uh, that he ran out of bounds on fourth down, like right before the sticks and game was over. So oh, I, yeah. it's, there, there's precedent for it. Um, he must've just like, just been complete. The moment was just too big for him. Clearly he had no idea what was going on. And right yeah, I kind of didn't realize it, but then he p- passed the line of scrimmage, and I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like he's running out of bounds. Like, what is he doing? Like, what is he? Like, am, I, am I missing something, or did I not see something? At insane. Uh, I yeah, I also thought on the second to last play there, you got to bring someone. This yes. team is
1: bad. They kept sitting back.
0: I I didn't like it. They kept sitting back. You just never know what's gonna happen in the end zone. A tip ball. We were getting pressure on them. I think you just send one more guy and still sit, you know, dig your heels in at the goal line, everything in front of you. Uh, it felt like it was an hour, those few plays. Uh they, they they made it happen. They got it done, and thank God, because that was a stupid, 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 stupid ending of that game.
1: Yeah, it really was. And you talk about not bringing pressure, and it, it plays into the same way like them, the way they handled the fourth and 24, and then the way they handled the last couple of plays of this was kind of the antithesis of way, the way the way they played the rest of the game in which the defense, by their standards, was incredibly successful. And that's what I don't understand either. And I was writing down some thoughts in preparation for this podcast this afternoon as Baker Makefield chucked a Hail Mary before halftime to someone double-named Jones, who I don't remember who it was, but it's not the point, but it was just kind of a funny moment because I was like, in the day and age of guys being able to chuck it down the field and you have freakishly athletic receivers wouldn't the name of the game without being overly irresponsible with it is not letting the quarterback get off a decent throw, make him throw off plane to where he doesn't get any mustard on it. That to me right. would be the best way to stop that versus just having a bunch of guys that are shorter than the receivers that are covering trying to bat it down or play defense. I just didn't understand that aspect of it. And then like you mentioned, yeah, the Joe Milton thing—it's unfortunate that Hendon Hooker got hurt. Like him, not like the him not being able to finish that game was—it stung for Tennessee. It worked out for Ole Miss, but we talk about the way we like process things in football. Like it was like oh hell, oh hell, oh hell, and then he crosses the line of scrimmage, and I was like it, like I paused for a second, and then as soon as he took two steps past, I was like oh the game's over, because he wasn't scoring. Yeah, the short side of the field like no. that, like it's—I don't know about you—as soon as he crossed the line of scrimmage, it took me about a half second, and I was like oh this ended that way.
0: Yeah, same exact thought process. I literally saw him heading towards out of bounds, and I looked at the clock. I'm looking at my girlfriend. I'm sitting there watching the game. I'm like, what is he doing? Did that just happen? <laughs> like, what is he doing? I, I couldn't even believe it. I was just – I mean, that's the perfect ending to that stupid game in the first place, but it was just bizarre. And I, it just – like I, we've talked about, everything of this game was just bizarre.
1: It really was. But it's a good win for Ole Miss. Um, you know, Neil McCready wrote a good – McCready, sorry, I keep saying it. I've known Neil for five years and figured out his last name was pronounced differently like a month ago. Um, but he wrote a good column about it after the game. Encourage you to go read it at But he talked about surviving. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, when we started, first got in this game, it was like Ole Miss surviving. And not to pat myself on the back, I get 99% things percent of the things I say wrong. But occasionally a blind squirrel finds a nut. After the Arkansas game, we were talking about the grand scope of the SEC West and what we thought Ole Miss's outlook was. And I was like, it's going to be a lot more games like this. And I think I said, like, not literally like this for the sake of Ole Miss's heart rate and, you know, liquor cabinets amongst fans. But I just thought it was going to be a lot more coin flips and toss-ups. And what do you know? A week later, they played an even crazier game. And honest to God, I don't know about the LSU situation. We're about to get to that. This is going to be kind of the life for Ole Miss. They're going to need to survive as they get healthier. And I don't know what that looks like because Kiffin doesn't disclose the injury things, but just leaving this game, what is kind of your outlook on this team? They survived Knoxville. And to some degree, I know LSU might come in as a lame duck, but they're going to have to survive next week. And they're going to have to survive Halloween at Auburn because they're not going to be a hundred percent healthy by then. And it's hard to get a gauge of what their health will actually look like and how much is like long-term injury stuff. But to me, these next three weeks and really the rest of the year is just how can you get by each week?
0: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. That's going to be the name of the game for this team with the quality of depth that they have. Um, fortunately, they have number two, and that's going to mask at least a few of these issues. But I mean, I just saw Zach posted that Austin Keys is out for the season, so that's another wow, defense. I didn't even know he got hurt. Yeah, I didn't even see that. I don't even remember that. But I saw. I just looked on my phone um, that that happened. So that's unfortunate. Um, But that's just what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to make – some guys are going to have to step up. Some guys are going to have to figure their shit out on offense and defense so that this team confidently can go forth the rest of the season. Because, yeah, I mean, we got so much to talk about with LSU. I mean, they're actually about to have a press conference in 15 minutes uh, with Woodward and Ogeron, which I'm sure is going to be a classic.
1: Oh, Um, God. I hate that we're missing that. We might – I'll – god i will we'll stream the, it <laughs> yeah we can stream it just give me the give me the. when you're not talking mute and give me the tidbits because that's going to be fascinating which oh my god. i think we covered just about every angle of this game and that's probably as good enough a transition you know well if we can get to a couple of sec footnotes after but the story of the day lsu beats florida uh in baton rouge and then it comes out today that lsu has agreed to a separation agreement with head coach Ed Orgeron to where he will not be back at the end of the year. He will supposedly finish out the rest of the season, and he will get the rest of his – he will get his full allotment of his buyout. A lot have been speculated about LSU, quote-unquote, having a plan to really kind of cut him off at the knees and kind of recoup some, if not all, of the buyout money firing for cause. You're more in tune with this situation than I am. I'll just tee this up any direction where you want to go. You texted me something – to the effect of like, this is kind of weird. What's your vibe on what's going on in LSU? Because this was another surprising chapter in a never ending circus.
0: Yeah. This got a lot weirder as we've been talking. Uh, they have released a statement clearly not written by Ed Ogeron, uh, but it's a letter from Ed Ogeron. They are having a press conference in 15 minutes to discuss all of this. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. And since I've been care, like watching football, caring about it, where a guy is being let go, told that he's not coaching the next year. And it's not because he's like too old or about to retire. It's because he's basically been fired. And we're about to have a press conference on a Sunday night before a game week discussing the situation. This is, I was actually, as an old miss, you know, person LSU fan as well. Like concerned, I thought LSU looked really, really good against Florida. I thought the talent they have on the team showed up, played super hard, and played for O'Geron is kind of like a last stand for your your coach. Clearly, classic they all hate Edo him.
1: win one for the Gipper,
0: right? Well, coming out today, it sounds like all the coaches hate O'Geron and all the players don't really <laughs> want to play for him for a myriad of different reasons, Um, and now. I've been on kind of the side of what happens when you get let go and are in limbo. How is this team going to show up on the road on 2.30 next week and play for this guy? How is he going to focus, these other coaches going to focus, on trying to put together a game plan when they're not going to be here next year? It, it, this whole deal, I think it's a just a massive mistake on everyone's part you either cut bait or you let him finish the season and then fire him or don't fire him at all and keep on keeping on. I have no idea what's going on with this whole deal right now. I think it's a total discredit to the players at LSU that they're having to deal with this bullshit because they, it's not their fault that this is happening. And now they're about to be coached by a lame duck staff for – six seven more games i this is insane to me i I don't know if i've ever seen anything like this
1: okay so i'm glad you kind of went there where you think it's a huge mistake how is this not a layup even if you wanted to fire him mid-season end of season what have you and i get that to me that's in some ways this is a reactionary decision to the game and them not having the balls to fully commit to what they wanted to do because everyone knew that Ed Ogeron was a lame duck head coach and he was a dead man walking, right? Like that, that seems to be fairly obvious that that was the case, but it seems like he didn't have the balls to full on, just pull the trigger on it after a huge win against a ranked team. And he tried to like soften the blow and sugarcoat it a little bit. And it's turned out terribly. And you've kind of, botched a layup. There was a million different ways to fire this guy and just move on. And now you have this awkward situation. You're about to have a press conference and you let him head coach the rest of the year where that's just setting up for awkwardness. And I'm just curious why you think they're allowing him to do that because I promise you they could put the water boy in charge if they're worried about another interim situation happening just to make sure that the guy that's coaching them in the interim is not a candidate for the head coaching job at all. I don't understand the benefit of allowing Ed Orgeron to continue to coach the final five, six games, whatever LSU has left of the season, knowing he's not coming back next year knowing his bank account is going to be well accounted for. Like, I don't understand why you have to throw him that bone. What do you make of that? I don't I, I don't get any of this.
0: I don't get any of it. I don't get a single thing that they're doing right now. And I think Scott Woodward is very good at his job. And I think they're going to have the ability to get damn near anybody they want. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, my understanding and what pretty much has come out of every single LSU media outlet is they didn't have anyone they trusted to be the interim at all, which is why he wasn't let go sooner. They, they literally had no one on that staff. That they were cap- that they thought was capable of being a head football coach for six games of a season that did not matter, which is just insane in its own realm. But I just feel bad for the players. I always I'm looking at Ross Ellinger's tweet. He's getting the full contract for the $17 million over 18 installments until December of 2025, including getting $5 million just mailed to him uh, in December. Sounds awesome. Um, th- Something happened. Something very clear happened. It was either, O said he is going to fight like hell in court and we're going to depose every person and we're going to go through this whole charade. Or Woodward gathered the money up and said, screw it. We're not going to fight this. We're just going to pay it and and we're going to end this. But this whole decision to kind of announce this transition in the middle of a season, I, I, you either fire him or you don't fire him. You, you can't do this. I mean, this is a <laughs> fucking shit show. And it's not fair to the players. I mean, if I'm a player at LSU, I'm opting out immediately. Like, this season is fucked. This whole situation is screwed up. This is not our fault. We're having to deal with this. I, this is It's just getting worse and worse as we're talking. I'm looking on Twitter and just seeing what's coming out and everything they're in like, why would you play? I mean, if you're a guy that can go play in the NFL, I mean, obviously all their players like that are hurt anyway, but these other guys, I mean, what are you thinking? These coaches are not going to be focused. They're going to figure out what they can do for the rest of their careers, not focus on game planning on how we're going to, you know, what coverage are we going to play against Matt Corral next week? And this is, and this is insane. I've never seen anything like this that I can remember. And if, even if it was done, I've never seen anything like this publicly. They may be a private agreement with a coach, like, hey, you know, we'll tell the team this and you – not even the team. We'll tell you this and your staff, but, like, you're out after this season or we're pushing you out. But a public declaration with a press conference in the middle of a season saying you're not coming back is something I've never seen.
1: That really is unprecedented. I I found that uh, to be very bizarre. Um, Like, I just – I don't – I don't understand the – like – you just kind of hit on it. I don't even know what to say at this point. I think there's a there's a press conference going on. There's a lot going on to this. I guess we'll start with this. What is like next for Ed Orgeron? Because we hit on this at the top, and we kind of like I guess pivoted to kind of get to the old Miss discussion. But it really is kind of sad in the sense that it's someone who kind of lost lost touch of who they were um, yeah. per se, and like there's a sadness element to it. But again, why is that like? He's not a guy that's been there a decade and a half, and you're going to let him have this one last long song, kind of like AK. Remember when they let AK um, coach out the rest of the year? That's a guy that's given a ton to your program. He'd been on, by all means, good terms, and it was just time for a change. Here it's a time for a change in myriad of reasons, but Ed hasn't earned that benefit of the doubt. And so I'm just confused by all of it. But what do you think Ed does from here? Because I have a hard time believing he gets another head coaching job. What do you think? Uh,
0: I think he is going to collect his checks, I think he is going to be done with coaching. I mean, I saw there's people like, oh, well, I'm sure he'll just go to Alabama or, or, you know, maybe Kiffin will bring him on as a recruiting coordinator. None of that is happening. This guy is already known for being kind of snaky. There, there's a lot of stories about what happened when he was brought to LSU and what happened behind the scenes trying to get less Miles out and positioning himself for the interim job. No one's bringing this guy on staff anymore. Not with all the off-field issues, I, I think he's done. I don't think you're going to see him coaching anywhere anytime soon. Maybe in high school. Maybe he'll do the Chad Morris route. No, I mean, I mean, serious. No, I'm, no, I know I, you're serious, but yeah, it's it's serious. the picture
1: of that Ed in high school, guys, is interesting to yeah. in me.
0: It's not. It's not a fun picture for the team in Assumption Parish or wherever that has to deal with him. Um, I, it's the whole thing is sad. You know, I'm an LSU person deep down and it's just I hate the way this whole thing is playing out oh my gosh it's it's about to start I'm not going to put it on we're not going to live it but I'll watch it later I just can't imagine what the hell they're talking about Sunday at seven o'clock I just these players man there's just good kids on this team some that I know some that I don't it's just crazy I just if you're a parent of an LSU player or recruit like what is going through your head right now? Like what is going on over there? And I mean, we'll get to it. I guess we can start now, but I mean, this is one of the best jobs in the country. They're going to get a hell of a football coach, but salvaging this season with real players just seems completely lost right now.
1: So we just made podcast history. That's probably, if this sounds like a jump in the show, I have no idea how it sounds. We cut it up. Weldon and I actually just paused the show to watch the awkward Ed Orgeron press conference because, um, I love a good press conference, love a good hostage video. Um, old Miss has been none de- known to have one of those. <laughs> years. But I just I, – I could tell, like, I wanted to watch it. Honestly, I'm glad you brought it to my attention. Like, we, we were going to discuss it. Like, it was happening as we as we were talking and kind of getting to the end of the podcast. Might as well just look at it. Uh, so, we are now post-LSU Orzeron woodward press conference. Just your thoughts.
0: That was super weird. I thought the whole thing was really, really weird. Um, They came out, and I thought it was going to be normal. Uh, They kind of, you know, Scott made his statement, his personal statement, which was clearly personal because once he stopped, he looked straight down at the piece of paper and was like, here's the (laughs) statement that I wrote out for this, uh, which is what actually is going on. Um, I I found myself kind of feeling bad for Ogeron. I, I think he's pretty disappointed. Uh, I think the only way this was going to be allowed to happen if he got all of his money and he kind of brought that up like three different times. He said it straight up at one
1: point. I wanted to make sure I get all my money.
0: Yeah. Which was hilarious. Um, He has the tendency to be pretty funny. Um, In classic, you know, LSU media style, they, you know, threw him some softballs. And then of course, One guy asked a real question, and Scott made sure quickly to take the microphone out of O's.
1: And that was uh, the one about the protest last year and the mishandling, just to be clear.
0: Which is like, been verified to have been mishandled at, like, every single step by Ogeron that's been written in stories that came out today. So, and then Ogeron, like, just couldn't shut his mouth about it and had to make another comment basically saying that this team, you know, no race issues this year. That was last year, no issues this year, (laughs) like as if it ended, you know, which is just, who knows? He's just so out of touch with that. And I almost can't, it's hard to fault him. He is just not that kind of person. It's, but it just, that was part of it. Scott said it was only wins and losses. That's just verifiably not true with everything that's come out. This was not just about wins and losses, but It was a weird press conference. I don't know what you thought about it. You've probably covered more of these things than I have, but there was a lot that was just bizarre about what just happened.
1: Yeah. So it's the name of the game in these press conferences, reading in between the lines as much as you can and without doing it over the top, because there's not always a ton there. Sometimes it quite literally is just uh, not for show, but, kind of just nothing. It's just a a formality and a nothing burger. There were two things that stuck out where the beginning of the press conference, when the the personal part did seem a bit genuine about, we're both Louisianans, we're friends, all that stuff. The second part was, I thought like, I forgot Ed was 60. He seemed very clearly that he didn't want to coach next year. I was curious if he becomes the Baton Rouge guy that opens up like a restaurant or two and just talks about that 19 season, makes a couple of appearances and lives out his day. But then he kind of gave the answer about the last question he got was, um, what would you tell the next coach Give any bit of advice? He goes, that's not my job. And I get, it's a weird thing professionally to be asked, but then I was kind of reminded of, no, it's kind of, like part of the reason that this is happening is because of what he was doing in his personal life as the head coach of LSU football, the story with Brody Miller, the instance of him essentially hitting on the lady in workout attire at a gas station and that being a high ranking booster. So I was kind of had to correct myself in the sense that, no, that's actually probably not going to be the case because I'm just not sure how many powerful enemies or adversaries he's made. You would know better than I would. It just that doesn't seem feasible. I was very much confused by the whole thing to be honest like I don't even really know how to put together a career do you the situation I just described him being the 19 championship guy will always love him even though it didn't turn out how realistic do you see that being
0: with the majority of people in Louisiana I can see that
1: being the case Staying with the in BR, who, though I should probably clarify being the guy that stays in Baton Rouge
0: yeah but like the I guess the boosters and big wigs in Baton Rouge probably don't want to see anything to do with him, especially if that was the case at the gas station. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if he's going to stay in Baton Rouge. First of all, he doesn't, I don't think he lives in Baton Rouge or he used to not, he had a house in Mandeville. He may have bought a, you know, he has a house in, in um, university club. I'm sorry, but there was a point in time where he was in Mandeville. Um, I would be pretty surprised if he stayed in Baton Rouge. Um, I know Les Miles got a new job, but he sold his house and, You know, his kids were still in high school. They moved. I guess they live in Lawrence now. I don't see him coming back. Um, This is a weird dynamic. I I don't see that going over well.
1: Um, I guess flipping it back to just from a football standpoint. I was going to ask you that. Does this change your opinion of the decision to let him coach out the rest of the year at all?
0: uh, No. No, it does not change anything I've said previously. This is either going to be the most dangerous football team in the country, or the worst and I don't know which one it's going to be um he I will stand with the fact that these assistant coaches their heads are not going to be fully in this in this season that's a fact there's no because there's no audition it's not like one of these guys might become the head coach next year the head coach is the interim coach and he's not coaching next year so he's not bringing you to another staff so everyone's a lame duck. Corey Raymond, who's been there and is going to be a lame duck. Mickey Joseph, because if they go hire Luke Fickle, these coaches, they're going to have to be finding a coach. Yeah, there's going to be a lot that want to go to LSU, but there's no guarantee that if they hire Fickle or Kiffin or anybody, that they're going to want to keep this current staff. So, what's the motivation of this current staff to keep coaching and keep recruiting? I mean, Ozron said he's going to keep recruiting for LSU. That's a mistake. They should not – he should not be on the phone with a single
1: recruit. I don't care how much he loves Louisiana. I was going to get to that. How do you – that's just all crap. That There's no nothing noteworthy to be said about that. I'm not going to say it's
0: total crap because, I mean, I think he genuinely loves Louisiana, and he is – I don't think he's going to bring down the Army, you know, bring down the ship with the captain like he may have done if this was at Ole Miss where he doesn't really have a personal relationship with the people and the university like he does. At LSU, But the idea that this guy is calling recruits all night, it, that's insane to me. He's not going to be the coach next year. He, he is not going to be coaching these players next year. And if you're a recruit and your parents like, hey, yeah, maybe we'll talk to the position coach because there might be a chance he's on the staff. But Ogeron calling every single recruit professing his love for Louisiana, that's not fair to him. And it's not fair to the recruits either. That just makes no sense to me. And sure. I, th- I I think that's probably bullshit.
1: There's a lot of directions I want to go with this, and I don't want to keep you all night, but that's an interesting aspect of it. When a coaching staff is relieved of their duties in a normal situation, and I know, well, you actually endured this. Yes. What is it like recruiting when, one, you don't have a boss yet, and you're having to convince kids to continue to come to your school, We'll just start there. I don't want to overcomplicate it because I know the Ed situation is unique and you've just outlined why that's bizarre. Yeah. But what is that like with the lame ducks staff? Because you didn't work for a lame duck on field staff, but I'm sure some of you guys felt like lame ducks. Some of you guys ended up being lame ducks. You weren't given retained you, you were still on staff. But what yeah. is that like recruiting when there's no captain of the ship?
0: So you have to fill out the remainder of your contract, which includes recruiting. So these assistant coaches at LSU, you know, they're if they're let go and they did not do their job as to their contract, they can be fired for cause. And that's a huge thing that agents will tell the coaches. I remember all the coaches that were on staff with Coach Luke. They're going to these kids houses. They're continuing to recruit. What is the message? The message is you're going to be a really good player somewhere <laughs> you know it's like I don't know <laughs> I don't like I remember I think that was an exact quote from one of the coaches on the staff he's sitting there he's sitting there in the living room with I a player he's talking to them and you know it, it's a horrible situation for the coaches and for the kids and I think one of the coaches was like yeah like you know you're gonna be a really good player somewhere <laughs> I don't know if it's gonna be at Ole Miss and uh, I mean it sucks but no those coaches you have to stay on the on the on the on the road recruiting, you got to keep doing your stuff because they'll fire you for cause if you just quit and don't fill out the uh, remainder of your duties as your contract is stated. So they're going to do that at LSU, but like I just mentioned, that
1: doesn't mean they're going to do it well. Well. <laughs> but you, the no way answer that, you answer that, you can't do that well, right? You're just screwed. No, you just have no. to be there. It's like any other thing in any other profession. There's awkward things that happen when there's change in, changes in leadership. So what you're saying is you guys just, like you mentioned, I mean, when you, when you bring up so we don't get fired for cost, you're just there to do it because you have to. There's no real message to be had. You're screwed, basically. That's correct. And I mean, I love, I get, I get it.
0: These, a lot of these coaches are Louisiana people. Most of them are and they have great pride for, and I I totally understand that there's more on this staff than most, but the idea that they're just going to sit there and not be concerned about their future and just profess their love about, you know, LSU is probably not the case. Maybe it is. And honestly, kudos to them. If that's the case, that's an impressive Better than most people would be in this case scenario, and I don't doubt that that might be the case, but the circumstances lead me to believe that's probably not what's going on.
1: What do you? So one of the weird things you brought up the Ross Dellinger tweets, and so as the press conference is happening, I went and looked at them. One of the weird things in the termination agreement is that Ed has to make one public appearance for the next four years or something at LSU's request. I, I know you uh, neither one of us, I imagine, unless you have some sort of background that I'm not necessarily familiar with or privy to how the standardization of some of these agreements, I, I would assume that's not that normal. Ross is very privy to them and he found it noteworthy to tweet. You mentioned it being not fair to O to have to do that. There's a certain element of like they're parading him around like a mascot for a bit longer. I don't understand that. Did you see that? What do you make of that? That, that seems very weird to me. Where did
0: he – yeah, that seems crazy to me. And the whole press conference – just
1: national championship stuff? Like,
0: hey – It must be like if, you know, ask him to come back to be on the sidelines for like a halftime presentation maybe. Okay. That That might be less than we are looking into it. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I don't – parading him around, that would be weird. Um, I I thought that what we saw out of this is Scott, Scott wilbur has got a lot of power there. <laughs> He uh, he is in control, and I, I think – I mean, you, I don't know what's going on. I thought it was a weird press conference. I thought it was clear that Scott was controlling the entire thing and O understood the scenario and kind of let it happen, and now it's all in Scott's hands. So, I don't know what the future for Ogeron is. I Like I said, he probably wouldn't be coaching, and he said he's probably not going to be coaching. That could change, but um, very odd – very odd night. I'm, I'm kind of glad we watched it – to kind of dissect it because i know we're an old miss podcast and Ozron has a lot of connections to old miss and guess what they play old miss next week so all this stuff kind of matters it's topical i promise you
1: people are interested
0: in it. yeah it's not irrelevant at all and um like i said earlier this is either going to be the most dangerous team in college football or this thing's going to shit so
1: fast and i really
0: i'm excited to see which one it's going to be
1: <laughs> the last like big picture thing is before we kind of move on and then we'll uh do the fastest growing segment on American. soil. don't worry, that won't be lost. It's the treat at the end. Um, what, what do you make of the, uh, the entire situation now that we've, I guess, heard the canned cliche speaking aspect of it, because there's a certain element of me that thought, okay, they clearly got in a room. I, do you, are they actually friends? Do you, did you buy the genuine, like, oh, hey, no, they're, no, no. they're Louisiana yeah, guys?
0: They, yeah. I mean, they're, I don't think they're besties. I don't think they're out there, but I mean, Scott Woodward, he lived in my neighborhood. He grew up next with my dad. He is as Louisiana as it gets. Ogeron is the same way. They so have they get a, along. They have a previous relationship. They get along and they, they both respect each other. That that's not a, that's not like a, some crazy outlandish nonsense that there's a real relationship there. So yes. with
1: that, with that being said, then that, that probably makes my question a little more valid than like, do you think that it was just they got in a room at some point? They this to me happened maybe maybe I'm reading in between the lines too much. To me this probably at least the plan was partially hatched before the Florida game because they kept referencing after the Kentucky game when no one asked yeah. about the Kentucky game. Right. And to me they got in a room and Woodward as you know, friendly as he seems. You mentioned him having a lot of power. The way you accrue power is being ruthless at times and being able to just kind of tell people straight up, here's what we're about to do. Here's the situation. Do you think they got into a room and he was like, look, Ed, here's what all like, let's just outline all the stuff you have going on. This could get ugly, but is there really any reason to make this ugly? Let's go out this way. You'll kind of go out as Louisiana's beloved son that won the national title. We'll let you coach out the rest of the year. You get your buyout and we will not turn on the lights to allow the – no, it's not the right phrase. We'll not – we won't go down this road. We won't go down the road that it could go down. Do you think that's ultimately a product of what this is, even though uh, I would say we both don't agree with the, the way it's being played out? To me, it seems like Ed maybe wanted to coach the rest of the year because the weird part about the interim thing, like Bill Snyder, when he gets fired, Like I'd say he'd gotten fired in the middle of the year. They announced he wasn't coming back in the middle of the year. Like, okay, everyone's going to go play hard for him because he's a legend. The guys like him, he's just kind of ushered out the door where every bit of reporting is that the players and the coaches can't stand him. So what do you make of that? Do you think this was just them saying, Hey, let's shake hands and agree that we won't uncover uh, open this can of worms. That could be bad for both of us. Let's start there. I'm overcomplicating. Do you think that's what happened?
0: No, I mean, well, that's the whole thing. That's why I think this thing is so crazy because the reporting and kind of what everyone's kind of known is that O's had issues in the locker room with the coaches and the players, and now you're expecting the coaches who already don't respect him to continue to coach throughout their contracts to their best of their abilities the rest of the season, and the players who don't trust him to play hard, and that's why this is so crazy. Um, and well, I don't agree with anything that's going on with it unless the reports are wrong which they I mean
1: are they look no. there's enough out there that's not it's not wrong
0: no exactly and I mean I, that's why I just I can't believe this is so unfair to the players um, going back to how you think it went down yeah Scott and him are friends and he's got a lot of power but he, that, the guy's a killer and he probably walked my guess is they walked in. Ozeraun kind of had an idea of what was going on, and Scott was like, "Look, out of just professional respect, we'll end up we'll pay your money. We'll we'll give you the buyout, but this this is over, and you're not going to fight it. We're not even going to put you in the position to fight it because we're not going to sink this LSU ship with depositions and lawsuits and fighting. We already have enough issues going on." We're going to cut ties. You're going to be really rich. You're going to have a national championship. You're going to have the opportunity to continue to coach, whether that's because they don't trust anyone else to do it or because he genuinely wanted to do it, which could absolutely be the case. Uh, and then we're going to move on. And that's that. And that's what's going to happen. And Ogeron probably shook his head, said, yes, sir. Thank you for my money. And here we are.
1: Yeah. Cause that's the other part of this is if they did open that can of worms and, Ed. Add- they fired him for a cause and Ed's fighting for his money and just kind of basically, I mean, That's- even when you like each other, when mud happens it muddies and uglies relationships and on Ed's perspective, you think, well, why not? They're firing me. Like, why would I not try to, you know, basically burn the whole place down on my way out? Well, now he gets all his money. And in his perspective, I imagine it would be, you know, you're talking about a guy who has a, some Rocky personal life stuff going on over the last 18 months does he really want to muddy the waters of something great they actually created? Because that's the way the whole 19 thing gets tarnished where you have the awkward five-year reunion or whatever it is. And Ed's not there because he's not on good terms with the school. Cause there's litigation and all that stuff. To me, that's probably why this was settled on his perspective.
0: Yeah. I think this had just as much to do with Ogeron not wanting more coming out about him than it was about the money. I, I Oh, and the uh, vice versa with Scott not wanting stuff to come out about LSU. Both things are the same. Ed doesn't want his dirty laundry aired. Scott doesn't want LSU's dirty laundry aired. They both are on the same page. Like, we're, we're not going to just destroy this entire program through a, a money fight in public. We could do it, but that's just not – that will screw up everything. And I think the appreciation O has for Louisiana, the school and everything, is like, yeah, I'm not going to – burn this shit down whereas if it was at Ole Miss he might have he might have taken the whole place down if he he would not have cared but I think he genuinely does care
1: last Um, thing before we move on do you think he coaches in college major college football again no I don't I think this is over I forgot he's 62 by the way yeah Uh, I was just like wow you know I'm 60 years old I was like oh wait to his credit the man looks great for 60 like that's (laughs) so <laughs> you know, all those runs out in the sun with Ray sure. Baker or whatever he calls the sun, the good for him. That that he looks great for 60. I kind of agree. Uh, we'll throw out one last tweet because we've quoted a lot of tweets today on this podcast. Ross Dellinger, excuse me, Stephen Godfrey, pretty connected guy, says the funniest part about this, or the strangest part about this, is that they're giving Ed the opportunity to coach his way into the Miami job. Oh, eh. my God. <laughs> bring in uh, the rock as his de- defensive coordinator. Yeah, <laughs> Like what is it? What does that look like? But anyway, there's more time for that? We can talk about that next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday before we get to the world's fastest growing or the, se- the fastest growing segment on American. So I can't even think Curry. this has been such a marathon of a pod. There was other action in the sec. The other side of this is actually the only thing I'm interested in getting in Dan Mullen, a team that cannot run the football did not even try to run the football, ran for like 78 yards on Central Michigan, ran for 287 yards, and Dan Mullen lost to a team that we now know pretty much had a laying duck coach who knew something going into the game. Well, um, Here's a great question. What the hell? What, what, what does he have to like, – does he not have to answer to this? What in the world was that? I, like, I was on the golf course for most of the day yesterday, limited college football action before that night-ish games, a little bit of the afternoon slate. What's your reaction to that? Like what in the world? Uh, that was insane. It's like, did they even practice?
0: Did they think that they were so good they were going to go play this team on the road and just beat them by just being out there? One of the worst coach football games I've ever seen. It is so clear that Emory Jones, we've kind of said this, he ain't the guy. The Richardson kid came in and it was like, okay, this is what Florida actually look like, looks like. But credit to LSU, they played their ass off. They finally ran the ball well, and honestly, all it took them was just trying to run it. (laughs) Just a few different things, a few different wrinkles. I mean, they just beat up Florida up and down the field. It could have been a blowout way before it got close. I mean, they had the Hail Mary, which was crazy, but then they had like three LSU touchdowns in a row that were taken back by holding. It could have been a blowout before halftime, and Florida was lucky to be in it, and then, of course, it got into a a very old Miss-esque game going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But Dan Mullen, I still believe he's an incredibly good football coach. He came out in this game very reminiscent of when Hugh Freeze came to play LSU. That was a bigger game, but a total flop of a game plan. Just a total flop of a coaching – uh I mean, it was a total coaching just disaster.
1: Anything else stick out? I uh, I mean, Georgia went about like everyone thought it would go. Poor Vanderbilt. They almost had it. Uh, I guess Arkansas-Auburn. I actually thought Arkansas would come out and beat them. Bo Nicks gets a win on the road. I didn't see much of this game. Um, that's going to be a tough one for Ole Miss. Um, that's probably one of those ones that I would probably think to, as of today – Ole Miss probably loses that game. Wouldn't shock me if they won. But is your opinion on Auburn change because you had the nice stat last week? As weird as it sounds, Auburn does control their own destiny, um, and the Iron Bowl does get weird. And I don't know what's left on their schedule. I imagine an A and M game is somewhere in their future. Just your thoughts on how that game went, and uh, that was the most. That might have been the most second most shocking result of the day, in my opinion.
0: Yep. I. uh... I won my first college football bet in what feels like a long, long time. I, I took <laughs> Pat Auburn. yourself on the back.
1: You can get tough out there on these streets. I, I,
0: took, I took Auburn plus four. Um, I, I thought Arkansas was just emotionally and physically depleted. Just the Georgia beat them up physically. Ole Miss beat them emotionally. They come back home, 11 o'clock game, which just sucks for them. That's their third one. It really one does.
1: First time home in a month.
0: Yeah, third one in a row. And I, Auburn – they played very well. I heard the officiating was very poor. Um, I saw that all over the place. I didn't really watch a whole lot of it. I, Bo Nix, since he's been benched, has been a completely different player, which is a credit to him. That's someone that I've done my fair share of shitting on, but he, to, he seems to have really play well. I mean, that, that's just the facts. You know, he's played really well. I've always said there was no guarantee Ole Miss goes on the road and beats Auburn. I definitely feel the same way about that. Uh, that's going to be an incredibly difficult game that I would imagine with Auburn's success, that could be a night game easily. Uh, yeah. And that's another sure,
1: game. Not, sure. Sorry, not to cut you off, but I was just saying that no, no. I'm sure you were getting there that corral, like if, if they win that corral does something insane like he did last night. Right.
0: right. That's
1: what you're going to going to have to take
0: what it's going to have to take um, because this team is just not really jailed on the road. Well, maybe third time's to charm this year, but yeah, I, that's going to be a really tough game. They look good.
1: Now it is time for the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. Uh, apparently the bees lost to Chelsea. Uh, cause I got a couple of tweets about, I think there's some Chelsea fans amongst the listeners and followers. I know if one is a uh, personal friend of mine, um, but that, uh, was not great. I hear the question I had written down to ask you was I started reading through, some research. And by that, I mean, I went to Chelsea's Twitter account and when they posted the final score, some of their fans were not happy in the replies. Is there on the moral victory scale of English Premier league soccer, can you have like a decent result in EPL games when you lose, like is Brentford going on the road and putting up a good showing and they lose one to nothing. Is that a thing in EPL?
0: Yeah, it's a very long season. I mean, that's a pretty good result for them. I mean, first of all, they're in a very good position. So you're playing with health money. Going on the road against probably the best team in the league, uh, and putting up a good showing, almost winning. I mean, if it wasn't for Chelsea's goalkeeper, Mindy, having the game of like his life, Brentford might win that game. Um, so that's a good result. They're in a great spot. But yeah, that happens. It's not 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 the end of the world for the Bees.
1: Um, anything else noteworthy? You mentioned a loss uh earlier that I already forgot uh when we were talking about. Something else, or maybe we were talking right before we were recording. Um, what's uh, what, what else stuck out in the league this week as I pulled the standings? Chelsea is a top the English Premier League 19 points, Liverpool 18 points. Uh, what's kind of the development? Give me the beat of the league this past week. Uh,
0: Liverpool is hurt, their entire team is hurt, but they might have the best player in the world right now. I think he, Mo Salah, he's Egyptian, he's a winger, he's been Ooh. very, very good for them for. A few years now but this year he's been on a completely different level he's a hell of a player he's as much fun to watch as any player in the world right now and i highly recommend putting on a liverpool game if you can they have a ton of injuries though so i don't know if it's gonna last um they're obviously very very good but still uh man city they beat a bad team their best striker got hurt they don't have one they're kind of in a very weird situation, still one of the best teams in the league. Man United got their ass kicked <laughs> on the road at Leicester. They lost four uh, two. We have no midfield. Our coach, manager, skipper, whatever you want to call him, I don't understand it. He uh, is mismanaging this team like nobody's business. We have so he's just played- getting sacked uh it's i would say it's coming i mean we we have no offensive identity uh ronaldo is making this team very one dimensional by being so old and not really doing anything except for being up top and around the box and there's a lot we're this team's way too talented to keep losing like they have been um so that's frustrating besides that i think tottenham in Newcastle, the new Saudi princes. Let me see what happened with that game. They played this afternoon. I think it was a pretty awesome game from what I saw on the Twitter. Uh, 3-2 Tottenham. Yeah, so that was probably a really good game. The uh, Saudis have not saved Newcastle yet.
1: They got to get um, the money in the works. It takes time. You know, it's two coming. Business days I think, or whatever they tell
0: you. Yeah. Um, supposedly, the uh, manager for Newcastle had a classic press conference before the game talking about how he's not fired and the, all the press can just, you know, shove it up their ass. So that, that so that was supposed to be awesome. And then um, I guess world cup qualifying, the U S is in second, they beat Costa Rica and we don't get another one of those until November. I believe
1: that game started out bad. Didn't it? I saw a bunch of angry tweeting at the beginning. In
0: like three, Yeah. I think Costa Rica scored like two minutes in. Um, and then the U.S. came back, scored two, which was huge. So now they're in sole possession of second, and they play Mexico first game of the next three in Cincinnati, I believe, or Columbus, one or
1: the other. There we go. Hopefully they don't need some skyline chili for the game. That'll do a number on your stomach. Um, yeah. So the last one I had on the soccer corner before we get out of here, the team that I don't recognize, that uh, this is pretty much my entire line of questioning to you on soccer corner each week, Brighton. And Hove Albion, I think they're just called Brighton pretty much. They're fourth. They've had three straight draws, it looks like, and two wins following up with that. Is this a surprise or is this a good club?
0: Uh, Very much a surprise. Okay. I wouldn't say I've been been following soccer for quite a while. They have never been up here before, and I think they're a relatively newer team in the league over the past two or three years, I would say. I'm sure they've been in the Premier League before that, but they've been – Recently uh promoted. So yeah, they're having a hell of a start to the season. They that's a surprise that they're that 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 high for sure.
1: Anything else? We just about covered it, winding down. Sounds like the U.S. is gonna qualify for the World Cup, which is great. Um the Bees had a good result, moral victory. We'll take that. Um, I'm actually waiting until people start calling on the bees to sack their manager. I don't know what that looks like. Do they start saying "bust the bookie"? Aren't there uh, guys gamblers? I don't know what that looks like, but I'm looking forward to that because uh, that means I can just shit post on the internet about the bees. Yeah, I
0: would say the only last thing was soccer. Sorry to cut you off. No, um, not at
1: all. The new, news nugget, like drop it. Up. Um,
0: there's a guy that plays in Germany for Borussia Dortmund. It's a big club. His name yeah. is er- his name is Early Holland. He is. If you want to start watching soccer and finding a guy that's fun, because sometimes I get it, it's boring. Turn on this guy. Okay. The, the Bundesliga, German soccer league, is on ESPN Plus. It they they cover it. it's on ESPN and ESPN Plus. This guy is the maybe the biggest superstar in the world right now. He is 20 years old. He is six four. He runs like a wide receiver and he is as good as any player playing the position. He's insane. If you want to get into soccer and need one guy or one team to watch, go watch this kid. He is unbelievable.
1: This has been Soccer Corner, the fastest-growing segment on American soil. You know you know it's catching on. We had a guy post on the board his thoughts to our thoughts on Soccer Corner, which were, one, greatly appreciated. I'd like to see more of that. Thank you for whomever posted that. But uh, now we are getting – Analyzed for our soccer analysis. And I got to say, it feels great.
0: Yes. I am not good enough to be analyzing soccer. People are going to start analyzing our analysis. That I can tell you for sure.
1: But you know, maybe can you start like swearing more? Like, could you be the Roy T- Kent on TV? Like, could we get that catching on? Maybe grow a beard? I kind of like that. You're the American Roy Kent.
0: No, I, I don't know what agree. the
1: chant would be, but maybe we can get that taken off the ground. He is Weldon, spot. <laughs> you got it. You got you think you can do the beard, the Roy Kent beard? You're not angry <laughs> enough, though. I don't think that would work out. Not
0: near angry enough, and I don't know enough, and I can't <laughs> grow a beard like that. So, oh, for three,
1: he is Weldon Rodenberg, soccer extraordinaire, for former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, uh, podcast ace. He earned every penny of his paycheck today because the, the making of this podcast took almost three hours of real time. Uh, yeah. I appreciate the time, dude. We will uh, talk again soon. And uh, surely we will have a lot to talk about next week, uh, good or bad. We shall see. But uh, I appreciate it, man.
0: Yeah, of course. Until next time.